Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina Thursday morning, August 31st, 843-661-0937. Takes Mondays to make Thursdays um, this week. Good morning, No Shot, No Shot Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Glad to see that we all made it through the storm safely. Yep. Governments yep. will be shut down around America today for, what, the next six or eight, ten days? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it rained hard and the wind blew, right? It yep. certainly I did. I mean, if you're a government worker, that's kind of a good thing, right? How many government workers don't get paid when it rains hard and the wind blows? Uh, I was scrambling yesterday. A little piece of property we're in the middle of developing. I was concerned about, you know, the um, the potential damage that could be done. And I thought about declaring it uh, kind of a government entity. And... <laughs> You know, we just shut it down. Shut it down. Yeah, don't worry about it. Yep. Just uh, if the wind blows and the rain comes, you know, a little harder than normal, the government will um, figure out a way. It's it's what Milton Friedman said. You know, Milton Friedman said one day, it's a good thing we don't get the government we pay for. <laughs> Friedman, Friedman was famous for kind of a, he was an economist, obviously a, a highly educated and acclaimed economist, but he had this knack. For saying things. He was Reagan's right-hand man. He and David Stockman uh, did a lot of work in the Reagan budget office and uh, economics or the, the matters relating to the economy. Reagan was not at all an academic, but he needed some degree of scholarly perceptions of the economy, and Milton Friedman uh, was indeed that. He would have been, I guess in today's world, a kind of an absolutist capitalist, a hyper-capitalist. I mean, he believed... Uh, it would have been kind of like Atlas Shrugged. I mean, he just had that scholarly, academic understanding of pure capitalism. Be interested to know what Freeman had to say today, uh, if he were alive, about corporatist and how the corporations have distorted some of the um, some of the ca- the realities of of capitalism. I thought about it this morning, and I, and I try to figure out, um, you know, the governments can take a day off and not pay a significant price. I'm not picking on government workers. Please understand. It's just a reality. I, it, it would be hard for a government worker to argue with me that there's not more runway slash leeway with them and their job uh, than the private sector. I mean, it would be real hard to argue that. I think they're both valuable. I think they're both important. I think one's critical. Um, <laughs> somebody's got to fund that beast, man. <laughs> you know right? Uh, somebody's got to generate the revenue and taxation so we can do all these wonderful things in the name of local, state, and federal governments. But I was thinking about it riding over this morning. Didn't cross my mind to text Rev and say, "Hey, wind's blowing hard over here. <laughs> Big puddle of water in my driveway. How about not, yours? I mean, I might not be able to make it." Yeah. Has um has some higher authority uh, called Rev and, and informed him, "Hey, just too dangerous out there. You just can't make it happen today." Uh, anyway, I went back and read. Um, once again, there's there's an old joke, Milton Friedman. Um, you know, it's a good thing we can't get the government. We don't get the government. We pay for. I went back and read. Remember when COVID hit and federal government workers started working from home? And you wonder how many's gone back to work now? You know, remote work, um, e-learning. I mean, I saw this yesterday on television. You know, um, they're not necessarily out of school. They're e-learning. Well, they are out of school. They're not on the bus. They're not in the car. They're not in the school. You ready? They're not in the schoolhouse. Uh, and every time I say schoolhouse, my kids are like, whoa, okay, schoolhouse. Um, <laughs> I like those jean shorts, Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, you okay. Yeah, you better believe it. Uh, anyway, so so I wondered, since all the Fed, ah, listen, fair. 
since many of the federal workers were allowed to remote work during COVID, how many have actually gone back to work? Because I see all these varying reports. So being the true investigative journalist that I've become, I went down the road of um, you know, 60 minutes. I was 60-minute-ish oh, for a moment or two. Yeah, I was, okay. Rev. So, um, so during COVID, and I, yeah, don't know me this morning because many government workers will not be at work today because the wind blew and it rained hard yesterday. I mean, they just won't, you know. Um, during COVID, nearly all federal workers, I don't know about state and local, but nearly all federal workers were allowed to work from home for a period of time. And I went and looked at, uh, this is kind of weird, uh, there's a, there's a, a place in Washington called the Metro Center. It would be like Union Station, Grand Central Station. It's called uh, the Metro Center slash Gallery Place. It's in uh, our nation's capital. It's Union Station is what it is, but it's called um, the Metro Center. So I went and looked at the average um, from opening to 930 exits. How many people actually got on that mass commute to go to, you know, to work in our nation's capital? And once again, I would imagine there are some people that drive their cars, but many, many people use uh, what they call the the Metro Center. You and I would refer to it as Union Station. Um, before COVID, that number was somewhere between thirty and 35,000 daily users-ish. And early 2020, it went to about zero. I mean, they basically shut it down. Today, it's at about 12,000. So we're at about one in three. Now, now, I don't know if that directly correlates to the number of federal workers going back to work in, in our nation's capital. We've got all these wonderful buildings and facilities and properties, and I'm not talking about the Jefferson Lincoln you know, memorials. I'm talking about office complexes where people go and, um, and do the, the transacting of our federal government's business. Well, prior to COVID, there were about 40,000 people a day getting on um, this, this uh, mass transit system in our nation's capital, went to about zero. It's 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 up to about 12,000 today. I'll show Rev the graph. See the graph here, Rev? Yep. This is daily traffic, and this shows our monthly traffic, average per month, average daily usage per month. And you see it's 30. I mean, it upticks here. Yeah, it just little varies. It, but, but it's about, it's somewhere yeah. between 30 and 35,000 yep. uh, people. It gets up above 35 occasionally, but it's normally around 35. Um, and you see the precipitous fall here when it gets to about zero. That's when everybody freaked out. Nobody went to work. Uh, and you see how gradual we've gotten back to. Um, and I got to believe that now that we have a, you ready? We have this new variant. You'll see another decline in the number of federal workers trying to get to a, um, a, a taxpayer-funded office complex where nobody goes to work any longer. Uh, is that good or bad? I don't know. Some of me says kind of what Friedman said. It's a good thing we don't get the government we pay for. We'd probably be in worse uh, straits than we are today. But anyway, that's just kind of a nugget of information to begin the show. Many, many government workers won't go to work today. I mean, I think schools closed. Am I right? If I'm not mistaken, yeah, the majority of districts. Yeah, I think we're, we're there you go. We're not, we didn't close the school. We converted to e-learning. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, we converted to e-learning. We do that now. We, we do that yeah. now. Um, and, and I have no idea. It, it I'm, I'm probably, when a hurricane hits Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, I doubt people at the federal level take off, but they may. But they may say, I'd respect to our friends and neighbors in Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas. We'll choose to not go to work today. Um, 
kind of uh, paying respect to um, those in harm's way. So there could be a bit of a um, another down tick, if that's a word, a down tick at the Metro Center Union Station in our nation's capital. And those are real numbers. I mean, forget what the what the Department of Justice says or the State Department says. I mean, these are real numbers. And, you know, that number is significantly less than it was. I guess what I'm arguing, guys, is prior to COVID, this many government workers were going to work every day in our nation's capital. Now, about one-third of those workers appear to have, unless they all bought new cars. I mean, they may have taken some of the stimulus money, bought new cars, and not using uh, the mass transit system. But mass transit traffic since COVID is about one-third of what it was. And driving over this morning, thinking about how many government workers will not go to work today because the wind blew and the rain hard, um, mm-hmm. you know, and the Carolinas do. Now, I get if you're on the coast of Florida. I mean, I certainly understand the disarray that you're experiencing today, the, the you know, putting the puzzle back together that is your life. And we certainly... Uh, certainly to consider their plot and their considerations and and keep them in our prayers but we had what i'd call kind of a um a messy rainy windy late summer day <laughs> but but i saw the scrolls at the bottom of the screen this is government agency closed that government agency closed another government agency closed and in the private sector when you close guess what you don't do you don't generate any revenue uh, what if the private sector took that many days off and there was some exclusion from having to be taxed for those days? In other words, what if a business generated $10 million a year in revenue and were taxed upon that $10 million, but they closed every time something like yesterday happened and they went from being a $10 million a business to an $8 million a year business? What happens to the government? Where do they get their funds from? I guess, in essence, the people that work for the government, with all due respect, and I'm not trying to insult government workers, but the people that work for the government need people to go to work at the private sector to make sure the money comes in and the cash registers continue to ring. And the people in Washington just simply aren't going to work as consistently as they were prior to COVID. Milton Friedman says that's probably a good thing. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and insult the government workers for you to make you feel better. But, um, you know, I'll tell you, I didn't used to feel the way I feel now. I've almost done a 190. You know, I used to trust everything, and uh, I always felt like the government was the good guys and all that. And then, you know, and I, I believe stuff, you know, but I don't anymore. And i tell you another thing that's happened to me. I dislike more and more and more. And I almost sound like one of these Jimmy Hoffa unions these guys got rich off the backs of poor people. And I'm getting to where I just don't, I don't like them as people. I don't even have a. Uh, Breeze, uh, Breeze, I got, I got to give full disclosure now. We can't mislead our audience. You texted me late yesterday and asked me if I'd watched the big short on Netflix. And I told you, yes, yeah. I watched it at the theater and I watched it at Netflix. That's in your bones, isn't it? I mean, after watching that movie, you have a different well, sense. What I had it, I was getting it. I was getting it. You remember, you also remember, I also shot you a text about 530 saying, you know, I'm getting to where I really dislike these rich folks. Like, I, you know, just in our little business, my wife and I aren't rich. Now, some, some would say that we do, do pretty well, but we are not rich. And, you know, and I guess some guy pulls up in a Mercedes 
and he's got a six million four you know, and the all the palms five and six million seven million even more is about a normal house there. You can't find a house on the Isle of Palms for two million hardly. I mean, it's really really hard. And if you go to Front Row Beach, you can forget about it. So uh, and then you know they'll come in and they'll say, well, you know how much is it sometimes. And you'll tell them, and they say, well, can I get a better rate? Or, like, for instance, if they sleep in and miss their thing, they'll say, hey, you don't have to charge me for that, are you? And I feel like I said, who do you think needs uh, needs that money more, you or I? I mean, the money that you're spending with me would be the equivalent of me bumming $10 off of you a couple of times here and there. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just getting to the point to where I dislike their arrogance. I dislike the way they kind of seem to look down on you and everything, you know, and of course I I jump right in them, you know, I don't let them even have a, get away with any of that stuff, even the ones that I, that I basically work for, even though we own our own business, I work for them, but I tell you, I'm getting to the point to where these, these I tell you, rich folks better watch out because I tell you, a lot of hardworking men out there and women, I guess, are daggone about had it with them. You know what I'm saying? Had it with their all of their thinking, you know, their whole attitude, and you know, and you better be real careful. That go going around, that just looking down your nose at the wrong guy because he's he's liable to push that nose in a few inches. I've just got to had it with these folks, and that whole thing about you know, the, the short. At the end of the day, I don't know. I'm sure there was some stupidity, but people knew exactly what they do it. They were doing. Now, the government may have forced the bikes to make some of these loans. I don't know. But I tell you what, it shows a corrupt system from top to bottom. And if you think the average American has any commonality with 99% of the people in Congress or the people running for president, you're wrong. I don't have one thing in common with Ted Cruz. I don't have one thing in common with Vivek Ramaswamy or one thing in common with Donald Trump. None of those guys. I have nothing in common with them. They are not, they are not representing the average common man, not one bit. And I've kind of to the point now where I'm just a, a touch more pissed than I am all day long anyway. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Josh, stick with me for a second. And, Rev, I want you to kind of opine here because I think this is an interesting exercise that we can do. If someone starts a business in the middle of a town with no stoplight and ends up on the good side of success – I mean, is that the American dream? I mean, I'm talking about my dad. I mean, I've, I've said before, and I'll say it again, I had an up row, a front row, up-close look at the American dream. My dad worked at a lumber mill during the day, moonlighted, building truck beds for farmers at night, and out of that came a successful business that was started in 1963 that my brother still runs today. My brother and two kids run that business today. I sold my half in 2008 to my brother to pursue other things. Uh... Is that the the great American success story? I think so, yeah. Okay, are you offended by that? Are you bothered by that? I love it. I mean, don't you want more and more people to do yes. that? Okay. Um, shift gears and go to Wall Street. There is a hedge fund manager that has figured out an algorithm or some creative. Very, very, I mean, he's very bright, very smart, very dedicated, but he's figured out a way to play a game in finance. And out of that comes him making a hundred times more than the person who built a business in the town with no stoplight 
Um, he makes more in a year than that person made in a lifetime. Is that, I mean, do you feel different about that success story than you do the guy who woke up every day, went to work, caught lightning in a bottle, you know, somewhat lucky. I mean, let's be honest. A lot of people work hard and never gain financial success. Um, and there, I'm not, I mean, the only person I know the complete story is my father. There are millions of people like my dad who started a business, who had a burning desire to be successful. Money may have been the motivator, may not have been the motivator, but they succeeded in what you and I would call the traditional American success story. That, to me, is what made America great. That's not, I mean, I, I do feel differently. I mean, I'm conservative. I'm a capitalist. I'm not for government intervention, but I don't feel the same way about someone graduating from Harvard School of Business or MIT and figuring out an algorithm that, that allows them to invest at exactly the right second and get out at exactly the right second. And out of that comes a, you know, uh, uh, an idea or concept that they sell to Goldman Sachs for $1.7 billion. I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but do we feel differently about those two situations or, or circumstances? Let's take a break. I want to come back and get Rev. And um, I want you to kind of elaborate on, you know, this story juxtaposed to that story. They're both kind of the American success story. They're just uniquely different one from another. Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937. So Josh and Rev, I put them on the spot here this morning. It takes Mondays to make Thursdays um, this week. Now, we got a loaded show. Drew McKissick will be with us at 805. Well, let's back up. John Decker uh, inside the Beltway. Uh, inside the bowl will be with us at about 7 30 ish uh drew will be with us at 805 the delegation um thanks to john, john Fetterman, Fetterman. the delegation will be with us not tomorrow at eight but today at about nine i don't know how many can come mike told me he's out of town jay i think will be here have not heard back from philip yet but we'll have at least one maybe two of the um the delegation i was thinking about delegation and Fetterman this morning when you watch the McConnell, I mean, how many of you have seen that? I'll get back to what we want to talk about here in a second. But how many of you have seen McConnell? He had another moment yeah, yesterday. Another moment. Well, yeah. another 30 seconds. Be fair. It's yeah. not a moment. It's right. only 30 seconds that he episode. stares out in the abyss. He's a Senate minority leader. He would probably be uh, the, most sec the second most powerful elected Republican in America. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, is the most important uh, Republican office holder. Trump's the most important Republican, no doubt about it. But McCarthy holds office and is Speaker of the House. On the other side, Senate Minority Leader um, Mitch McConnell was asked whether he's considering running for re-election in 2026, and he stared off into the abyss for about 30 seconds. And someone came up and tried to help him along and realized he really couldn't be helped. Remember last time they saved him, mm -hmm. kind of got him somewhere, and I guess gave him some Celsius and fast twitch and got him rehydrated and, and back on the job. Uh, but this was a um, kind of kind of a... I mean, the other was a weird moment. This was even more weird. And I read this morning that some of the cancer treatment, he's been diagnosed with cancer, some of the cancer treatment has these sort of side effects. The, the, the quandary Republicans find themselves in is Kentucky has a Democrat governor. Governor Bob, is it Blackshear? Yeah, I think uh, Blackshear. Um, now, he's, he's, he's got a challenger, but that's only until 2024. So in the name of... You know, controller and, and keeping, I don't know, more Republicans in the Senate. What if McConnell resigned his leadership position but stayed in the Senate and we just kind of lead him along like the Democrats are doing, uh, Fetterman and Dianne Feinstein? Um, I still think it's 3 1. 
I think you got Fetterman, Feinstein, and Biden who don't know what day of the week it is. And then we've only got one of those guys who doesn't know what day of the week it is. They get these deer in the headlight looks. The only difference in a deer and these four is deers don't appoint Supreme Court justices. <laughs> That's true. Deers don't spend trillions of dollars. If a deer, that deer in the headlight look, okay, it's the deer. He's not, you know, asking someone to vote for him and yeah. put him in charge of He's advising and consenting Supreme do Court. Do things and vote on things that affect my life. Important stuff. Yeah. Very important stuff. Um, but anyway, um, the lady that walked up to McConnell yesterday and kind of winked. I don't know if you saw that or not. He was in Kentucky, so he's he's uh, he's home. Uh, and she looked at like, uh, I mean, yeah, just tr- tr- try to distract for a second if you can. It's just bizarre to me that this, look, a, a nation on the ascent doesn't allow this. I mean, they address it. If you're a, a functioning republic that has confidence in its leaders, you replace that guy. And you trust the governor of Kentucky to make a sound decision. But we are a nation in decline. Our, our political leadership has basically squandered uh, the effectiveness or efficiency of our of our federal government. And someone said, deer in the headlight look. That's not a deer in the headlight look. That's a Senate minority leader in the headlight look. Uh, but that's a guy who gets a lot of credit. But but it, I'll tell you the difference in, in Biden to me. And, and I don't have any, well, I mean, I give a medical, a medical opinion. I'm not giving medical advice. That's a good way to say it. I give a medical opinion. I'm certainly not giving medical advice. My medical opinion is McConnell's dying. I mean, I really believe that. I think he is a man um, near the end. Uh, from what I read last night, an article in the Wall Street Journal, some doctor um, gave, gave an opinion that some of these real aggressive cancer treatments can do this. I mean, they can they can lead to periods of incoherence, and you just go blank all of a sudden. And, and he, he did. I mean, it, there's no stumbling and fumbling. It's not him grabbing for a sheet of paper. I mean, it is an absolute stare out in the, in the, the abyss. And I, I don't think Biden's dying I just think he has significant cognitive issues. I mean, I think I think McConnell may be, ah, you know, that's a medical opinion. Certainly not um, based on any sort of um, warranted observations that that medical professionals could or could not give. That'd be interesting. Is there is if there is a doctor? No doctors calling this show giving their medical <laughs> opinion over the air. That only happens on Fox and MSNBC. They find these right. these med- uh, medical hacks. But that'll kind of get, they'll say whatever to get paid. They may pay uh, him a little bit. What right. I mean, would you say this about Biden? No. What about for $200,000 a year if you're our medical consultant? <laughs> yeah, I'll say it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> can I get paid now or is it in, is it in uh, tranches of, of money? Um, eight four three six six one. I want to go back to this, um, this scenario that, that uh, Josh and, and Dave have been asked to play out in their, okay. in their heads. Do we have a call? Uh, we do. Okay. Let's go to the phone. Be respectful of our, our callers. Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe. Damn, that was quick. Yeah, the, uh, the the legislature in Kentucky had the foresight when they had a Republican governor to put into law that the Senate and the House of Representatives would present the governor, no matter who it is, with a list of acceptable candidates to replace something in McConnell's uh, situation. So it's not as bad as it seems. But the governor still gets the final say. I went back and read two articles yesterday from the Kentucky media. The governor still gets the say, and the Republicans in the General Assembly don't believe they can um, outmaneuver the governor governor in this. 
want it if if it's a Republican. That you, yeah, they probably screw. Well, I mean, Dan- Daniel Cameron is the sitting AG, and he's challenging. Um, what's his name? Bashir? Is it? Is yeah, it? Bashir. Yeah, yeah. Governor Bashir. And I read yes. some polling. I don't know earlier this week, Joe, that shows them at about a dead heat. So he's got a formidable opponent. Um, and I don't understand Kentucky having a Democrat governor. I just, for the life of me, what it don't don't me, because I'm I'm of the opinion that McConnell doesn't belong in the Senate. But I'm also of the opinion the more Republicans we have, the better off we are. So, so my idea was, what if McConnell resigns from his leadership position, remains in the Senate, and then I remember some of the um the politics you're talking about in the state of Kentucky, and I remembered that they the Republicans found a credible candidate. And it's a sitting attorney general that they believe has a decent chance to beat um, Bashir in, I think, 2024. Right. They, I think their election is sometime this fall. So you were questioning yesterday about these ads that are coming out against Trump. Who, who's behind it? It's the Americans for Progress. That's the Koch brothers. You know, they like this illegal immigration for their labor force. But, you know, Reagan was kind of a prophet when he said, you know, freedom is only a generation away. And it's been about a generation since Reagan was president. And our freedoms are being tested. Look at what they're doing. You know, they're going after their opponents. Now they're going after Elon Musk. You know, he used to be the darling of the left. You know, the the electric car and SpaceX and helping NASA and all this. Now they've got three different lawsuits going after him. One of them for not hiring illegal aliens. I mean, that's about as dumb as you can get. Another one called he's building a building, and they think he used SpaceX money instead of his money. And there's something else about an autonomous driving system that only certain people get. And it's all frivolous, but since he became, you know, a, a conservative and says he might vote for a Republican, they're going after him. So we've got to figure out as a people how we're going to put a stop to this. Because it's getting worse and worse and worse. And these people really don't care. They're ready to blow it up. I mean, if you remember in 2020, all of the businesses all over the country boarding up their their buildings and their windows because they were worried about Trump being reelected, but yet they say the conservatives are the ones that go out and do all the destructive. They're, they're turning everything on its head. So we need to figure that out, and y'all have a a good safe Labor Day weekend. Glad we made it through the big hurricane. And I take it you're at work. Sounds like thank you, Joe. Appreciate the call. Uh, it sounds like Joe's at work. I hear the um, I didn't hear the uh, the the backup alarm on the forklift this time, <laughs> like we sometimes do. But but we heard some background noise. It sounded like yeah, early uh, a job site. I, I, I want to get back to that in just a second, but I, I'm sidetracked. I'm sidetracked because Joe's talking about with clarity, vision. Where do we go as a as a party? Drew McKissick will be with us at eight oh five, and then again, uh, Drew's coming back in after the show, and we're going to record a podcast. It'll be more extensive, more elaborate, more detailed. Um, one of the questions, and I got an article here that, that is interesting. I went to the I go to National Review every day. Um, the, the old story. I mean, I, I like to comment on the National Review because I comment as Dave Baker. 
you get to be anonymous. I, I get to be anonymous. And um, yeah, it, put it, it on me. So, some of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, it's me. And um, and I guess you Google and so well, that's the guy that got in trouble. Who cares what he says? But I can be Dave Baker with the uh, with the National Review. <laughs> so I read an article today. I read a couple of articles in National Review this morning about you know the situation with McConnell, and it was sympathy and empathy, right? I mean, it was all about this guy's being a warrior, a conservative warrior. That means he's funded wars, um, <laughs> but he's been a conservative warrior. And the comments were one, you know, I hope he's okay. I hope he's okay. I hope he's okay. Um, maybe we can get him back in good graces with medicine and medical treatment and whatnot. But but he's been one of them. I mean, historically, he's been a globalist neoconservative. Uh, the National Review readership will reward you for being a globalist neoconservative. On the other side of the tabs, an article about Trump. Yesterday, Trump said to Breitbart that, yeah, we got to arrest them. I mean, if they come after us, we got to go after them. Um, and the, the, the comments were just negative. I mean, it was, um, it was as, no, 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 no understanding, no sympathy, no consideration. This is why Trump's dangerous. I mean, this is why he's out of control. And so you've got an article about a, a Senate minority leader doesn't know he's in the world for 30 seconds. And it's all about, just get this guy back. Let's prop him up. Weekend at Bernie's is okay. As long as he's a neoconservative globalist. And then on the other side, you've got Trump saying something that a lot of Republicans believe, fight fire with fire. You know, they throw a punch, throw a harder punch, and he's just um, lambasted by the National Review readership and uh, those responsible for running the National Review. And it led me down an article I found toward the end of last week. There's trouble in paradise. You ready, Rev? The National Review and Heritage Foundation are at odds with one another. They never are. They've always been fanning the flames of the American empire. They've always been for, um, you know, fair but uh, free but fair trade. That's the old catch, free but fair trade. And the the Heritage Foundation did a big uh, a symposium, and they invited some of the um, some of the Republican personalities. Rand Paul was actually there. When Rand Paul gets invited to a Heritage Foundation function or event, something's up. Rand Paul is not normally... Um, that that revered in the Heritage Foundation because we're talking about think tanks and and media organizations that have helped shape the neocon narrative for the last 30, 40, uh, since Reagan, really and truly. Um, but but the 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 idea behind the uh, the gathering of the Heritage Foundation was this war is waging a raging on, and we're spending billions and billions of taxpayer dollars, and nobody has let us know what the end game is. I mean, nobody has said with any degree of clarity, what is the plan? I mean, is it just to send Zelensky money when Zelensky says he needs money? I mean, apparently that seems to be what we've agreed upon in the name of, I guess, the American empire and and neoconservatism. Well, the Heritage Foundation invited some non-neocon, non-globalist Republicans to their gathering, and the National Review said it was a moral obscenity. Uh-oh. The National Review and, and and Heritage Foundation never disagree. I mean, they've been in lockstep one with another. Um, now, there was a, I mean, the Heritage Foundation took a position about the U.S. aid to Ukraine. Um, and then Dominic uh, Pino, who is a writer at, and I read him, and he's a smart guy. He's very well, um, I mean, he's very well thought of in that circle. But he says, um, he basically says that, um, well, he, he, to me, he summed up the neocon worldview 
in almost a single line by saying not all the money goes to Ukrainians. Much of it goes to the U.S. defense contractors, which employ Americans and contribute to the U.S. economic output. So, so what he's basically saying, what the National Review is saying, because this doesn't get on the, um, on, the, on the website unless Rich Lowry says it's okay. I mean, Lowry runs the National Review. Um, so what he's basically saying as a writer for the National Review, that as long as we're bankrolling bank foreign wars, it doesn't matter if there's an in-game strategy. It doesn't matter if we are asking for certain things in return. It's good for the American economy. <laughs> It provides it provides jobs. Yeah, the, the Ukraine, that's kind of a bizarre argument. Well, I mean, that's a crazy argument to make that the Ukraine war is a U.S. jobs program. I mean, I want to go back and read it again. Not all of the money goes to Ukrainians. Much of it goes to the U.S. defense contractors, which employ Americans and contribute to U.S. economic output. That's what the National Review had to say about the moral obscenity that was. Um, the Heritage Foundation. So, yes, there's trouble in paradise. It'd be like Siamese twins getting pissed off at one another. <laughs> I mean, really and truly think about it. The National Review and Heritage Foundation down. never, ever disagree. This leads me to believe, uh, you know, in a good way, there's trouble in paradise. The neocons are really beginning to consider, hey, man, this thing may not be a blip on the radar. I mean, this new political energy within, it, it may be time to at least give it the time of day. And Heritage Foundation appears to be at least willing to invite pe people to speak at their think tank symposiums that may have an alternate worldview. Not quite as imperialistic as, um, as they historically have been. Take a break. Back in a few. We start so many things here and not finish. <laughs> I mean, we do it. I mean, it, it's, it's who we are. It's what we're about. We start down a, a road, and then we deviate, we change, we turn, we twist, we talk about something else. Um, we began the show this morning offering up a hypothetical. And the hypothetical is there are men and women who have been highly successful in business and in, in what I'll call blocking and tackling. I mean, making widgets, uh, pursuing and achieving the American dream, uh, whether it's building truck beds in a town with no stoplight, uh, starting a construction company in upstate South Carolina, uh, building a laundry business or a dry cleaning business, Things that we kind of um, have somewhat of an understanding of. And then there's this other, and it comes out of Br Breeze talking about the big short and some of the um, the financialization of the American economy. I asked Josh and Rev to consider and, and give an opinion on whether or not they have as much respect for someone who comes up with a uh, some sort of a computer algorithm that gets them in and out of the market at exactly the right time um, I mean, it's ingenious. I mean, it, it takes a high degree of intellect to do some of these things that have been done, but they sell that idea or algorithm or computer program to Goldman Sachs or Vanguard or, or, or you know, BlackRock for, you know, $1.6 billion. I mean, that's the way the markets work. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the supply of that particular algorithm are limited. There seems to be a, you know, pretty big demand in the world of finance and financialization of the economy. The, the point I'm asking is, I mean, I, I've often wondered, I, I dream a little bit about this, and I, you know, I know it's an unachievable dream. It's a pipe dream is what it is. But what if we build an economy where everybody got exactly what they deserve? I mean, you know, what you deserve is arbitrary. I don't know what Josh deserves to do his job. Josh didn't know what I deserve to do mine. He's got an opinion. 
but his opinion's arbitrary. I mean, it's not exact. It's not precise. He doesn't know that he's right about what the, um, I mean, we, we trust the market and, and some of the contractual negotiations between, you know, employer and employee. But I've often wondered about a, an economy where people got fairly compensated for what they contribute to the overall GDP of our nation's economy. And I do believe that some of us historically conservative-natured people are a little bit offended that someone would come up with a computer algorithm that, that gets them in and out of the market at exactly the right time. Technical trading is what it, you're not buying this stock because they sell more widgets than it. It wouldn't be Walmart or GM or Ford or, uh, for that matter, Google. You know what I mean? It, it, there's a great idea there, and we believe they're ca- they'll capture a larger share of the market, therefore increase profit. Uh, they do it better than anybody. They can demand a margin. I mean, that's, 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 that, that's kind of the economy 101. But, but I asked Josh and Rev, what, what is, I'm not asking you're offended or not. Give me your analysis of the, the comparing and contrasting of those two success stories in the American economy. One built the widget. He got up earlier, stayed up later, persevered, convinced the bank to borrow loaning money, worked harder, got his family members and friends. You know what I mean? The, 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 the great American success story. Are you kind of asking if the Wall Street millionaire is also the great American success story? In, in essence, yeah. I mean, I'm asking that. I mean, Based I, on how they got there and what they did to, well, I mean, quote, earn it? Well, I mean, we, we, are they contributing? Is the economy better when we're rewarded or compensated proportionally based on what we contribute? And have we built an economy where some people aren't proportionally compensated? We talked about NIL Monday. We talked about the player not being paid. I mean, if I could build truck beds and never pay a welder or a machinist, my margins would be markedly better. I mean, you know, they would go up significantly. Uh, that's kind of the way college football has operated. You know, the universities and conferences have gotten wealthy because they didn't have to have to play or pay the performer but a, a small amount. So, so that, to me, is unfair. I don't like that model. I'm not saying the NIL is the, is the right model, but somewhere in between um, the two. But, but do you have the respect? Is it, is it, is it, yeah. I mean, is that the American dream? I mean, it, you and I have always interpreted the American dream as this guy who gets up earlier, stays up later, that th- this lady who just is more diligent, more persevering, uh, got a better idea. But all of a sudden, Rev, we got this economy now where people are making, in the financialization side of our economy, they're making as much in a year as some of these other American dreamers are making in a lifetime. I'm not asking, do you like it or not? Give me your take on that. Hmm. I have always been one that has been happy for anyone who achieves success. If, if their financial success is their goal, and whether it was the American dream, your dad's story that we talked about early this morning, or somebody who figured out the algorithm to, to make the, the stock market trades work to their advantage in an extreme way, great. More power to them. Happy for them. So you believe they're contributing to the overall good of the economy. Um, let, let's use the guy making the widget. Let's say the widget is a, well, I mean, the truck beds. I'm going to say the truck bed. I mean, that, that's a tangible asset, right? I mean, the farmer takes that truck bed. He loads that truck bed with grain. He takes that truck load of grain to the market. He sells it. He makes a profit. Um, he, he pays his tractor payments and his land payments and his, and his fertilizer payment. Um, the construction guy takes a dump truck. And he fills it with dirt, and he signs a contract with a road builder, and he and he hauls that you know that that dirt in there to to bed up the roads. And I mean, there, there's a tangible value to that. It makes the, the the country a better place. Farmers are feeding people. 
construction workers are building roads and bridges. Is Wall Street contributing to the economy proportionally from what they're being compensated for? I guess that's in essence uh, what I'm what I'm asking. Or if there's a finite GDP and everybody's getting, you know, um, nothing, some people are getting more than their fair share, some are getting less than their fair share. Should should the construction worker, the farmer, be paid more? And, and they're not being paid as much because this guy's figured out this unique way to play the market. I mean, what is that guy contributing to the economy? I mean, I understand if you've got an investment account at Goldman Sachs and this guy buys the, or Goldman Sachs buys that algorithm, it's more likely you make a favorable return. So you can go on more trips. You can fly on more planes. You can increase the profitability of hotels and, and, uh, and airlines. I mean, I understand you're contributing in some way, shape, or form, but, but I just think we've got an economy today where, People are being paid enormous amounts of money, and it's hard for me to understand exactly what they're contributing to the economy. In other words, the guy that sold his business for a billion and a half dollars, is that, is that, and I'm talking about an algorithm, it's not a business. I mean, it's not a brick and mortar. He doesn't have any employees. It's an idea. It's a concept. It works. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It works. But when I look at the number, when I look at the amount of wealth centered in our financial sector, it concerns me. Because once again, GDP is a finite number. It's a big number. I mean, it's 25 or $6 trillion. But more and more of our uh, GDP is, is being transitioned to the financialization of our economy. And I'm not sure that Wall Street is producing what, what they're getting in return. And if they're getting more in return than they're producing for the good of America, then somebody's getting less. Is the farmer getting less than his fair share? Is the plumber getting less than his fair share? Is the nurse getting less than her fair share? Is the school teacher getting less than his or her fair share? Because financialization of the economy is 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 is, is garnering more of uh, the nation's wealth and prosperity. I'm completely pro-rich. I I think that you know, like this kind of cele- celebration of being poor is is really overblown. I think I think your dad and the guy who invented that algorithm are one and the same in my book. There's a difference in, in how they made their money, but ultimately like like to a certain degree I even admire the the Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street guy. You know, like he may have been a scammer, but he did he does have a hustler mentality. And I think a lot of people a lot, like even to a certain extent, the Richmond, north of Richmond thing, I think it stems a little bit from jealousy, and we need to be careful about that between uh, focusing on jealousy and modesty. So what if the economy has been constructed in a way that allows certain sectors to unfairly benefit? I mean, do you believe, do you believe corporations have undue influence See, on our economy? That's where I get offended. I, I, mean, get, well, I, mean, sure. I, I get offended if the if the... If the Wall Streeter has an advantage, and they're an be, easy target, you would right, agree to that. Course, they're they're an course. easy target, and that's where the money sure. is. That's <laughs> but if they have an unfair advantage because of their relationship and influence into Washington for policy uh, decisions and stuff like that, and we know that's absolutely what happens. That's the part that offends me. Um, that's unfair. That 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 sets the scale out of whack to where you know the 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 farmer or whatever. The, the the worker doesn't get what they deserve, and the Wall Streeter may get more than they deserve. When you look at it, you know along is that, that way you're comparing that, the two. Okay, and that's I where I you. think capitalism kind of fails. Well, I mean that that's when it's not capitalism; it's corporatism. 
I mean, right. corporations hire lobbyists. Lobbyists put influence on government. Government makes policy in the name of, you know, uh, what the lobby wants or what uh, the, and once again, Wall Street's an easy target. Uh, Goldman, uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, I mean, they, these are real easy targets. Josh, I want to go back to something. You're pro-rich. I love so, that. So, I wrote that down. Well, I wrote yeah, down well, pro-rich. Well, I love that. Okay, and, and I, I'm pro-rich. Um, but does it concern you at all that fewer and fewer companies are hoarding more and more of our nation's wealth? I, I do, yes. But but that, that's pro-rich, right? I mean, if, if Vanguard has trillions of dollars under management, do you think they have a right to have more trillions of dollars under management? What I'm asking, Josh, is there some balancing act that we have to convince ourselves of that, yeah, we can be capitalist, but we, we, we've got to also understand fundamentally it's not good for the economy to have more and more of our nation's wealth and fewer and fewer of our people's hands. I mean, would you agree to that? That it's not good in the long run for an economy to allow, and I think Rev's on to this, and are, are they, are they, do they deserve it? That's one thing. Are they lobbying government to create advantages? I mean, in my days in politics, we called it pulling the ladder up. You know, you get these things done in the name of preserving your market share, and then you pull the ladder up to make sure nobody can do exactly what it is um, you chose to do. So, so that that's the point. I want to come back to that. I know we got Decker at what seven thirty ish. Yeah, in just a few minutes, we need yeah. we need to take a break. Well, let's do that. Let's take a break. We're rambling about here. Us capitalists are teetering on the <laughs> edge of anti-capitalism, <laughs> anti-Wall Street. How about that? Pro Wall rich. A, yeah, Wall pro Street's rich. A, Wall Street's an easy target. Still yeah. pro rich. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I, I mean, love I, it. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few. Four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, I am great, Ken. Hope you're having a good week so far. We are having a good week. The sun's actually shining a little bit. I see the sun making yeah, its way through our through our. So we had a the rough, day after. Yeah, a rough day yesterday and and last night. A little bit yeah. um windy and rainy. But um, is there? You're in Washington. What is what is the administration's response? I mean, we always wait on the government to do what the government does once these hurricanes make landfall. Sure. Idalia made landfall in Florida, worked its way across Georgia, and the Carolinas is now kind of heading off to sea. But what has the administration said or done in, in officially responding uh, to the hurricane? Well, FEMA obviously is the lead agency. You know, 1,500 people on the ground that were pre-positioned uh, before Idalia made landfall on the Gulf Coast of Florida. Uh, they remain in place. Uh, you know, also consider that FEMA is still in large numbers, about a thousand on the ground in western Maui from what happened there with the wildfires a few weeks ago. Uh, the president uh, indicating yesterday he's spoken to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis a few times, both before and after landfall of what is now a tropical storm, and also spoke to the governors, as you know, of Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina, pledging that the federal government will provide whatever it is that those governors need as they recover from Adelia, uh, which was pretty powerful when it first hit. John, I think you would agree with me. I guess I'm forcing you to be a political pundit to some degree, but I think okay. this is, sure. well, I mean, in all honesty, this is Ron DeSantis's moment. I mean, nobody will accuse DeSantis of being charismatic and the most likable guy, the most relatable guy, but the people that have always thought he would be a good president are convinced of that because of the way he's governed. He's been kind of a technocrat. He's, he's proven himself to be somewhat competent. You can disagree with the way he's carried the state, but there's a degree of competency that he's exuded and demonstrated. This is his moment in time to once again solidify 
uh, you know, affirm that, that, that competency that some people believe he has that maybe some of the others don't. Is, do you agree with this is kind of a, um, a moment for him to define whether he's going to make a rise in the GOP primary or not? I do, you know, and, and I think that that, you know, going back to uh, his entry into the race, which happened in late May, uh, I think he made a, a big mistake uh, with that introduction that he made to the American public. The introduction was one in which he really focused on uh, what would be described as these woke issues. Uh, that is an issue that is important. Let's not diminish it in any way, but it's not as important as issues related to jobs and the economy and what you point out, Ken, which is competence. You know, one of the things that uh, Barack Obama, uh, when he was campaigning the first time for president, you know, no drama Obama. Uh, the idea that this guy is just going to be competent coming in and managing all the things associated with both domestic policy and foreign policy. And, you know, to your point that Ron DeSantis uh, doesn't have the most, uh, I don't know, uh, impressive personality. But he's good in terms of management. And we've seen this now two years in a row in dealing with two major hurricanes that have hit his state. John, I asked, I want to shift gears. I asked a reporter back in my political days, did he view me as a person or a potential article? And he kind of looked at me like, I don't know that I've ever had that question asked, but that's a very interesting (laughs) um, conflict that we find ourselves in. And I want to go here because you could probably give more insight to this than anybody on our radar. And that is Senator McConnell just kind of drifts off into the abyss yesterday. We, we've watched John yeah. Fetterman struggle. We've watched Dianne Feinstein sure. have issues. We've watched Joe Biden, with all due respect, have some issues at coherence and, and you know, staying in a, in, a, in a very competent frame of mind. How do we balance this humanism that we believe real people deserve consideration for, but they're making monumental decisions on our nation's behalf and I read a poll, uh, maybe Monday of this week, that people are deeply concerned about McConnell and, and Biden and Fetterman and Feinstein and a couple of others who are more advanced in age than most people who are working in the workforce. It's not a question, but you're somebody who is in the belly of that beast every day. Do, do you sense how alarmed people are about how long some have stayed there and what their cognitive state appears to be? Oh, I sense that. Absolutely. But, you know, these are public servants. They serve their constituents uh, of their respective states. You know, for Fetterman, it's Pennsylvania and Feinstein, it's California. Uh, And with Mitch McConnell, it's not only the people of Kentucky, but also uh, his constituents are his fellow Republicans in the Senate uh, that he is the leader of. And so uh, to me, the decision about whether or not they have the competence uh, to continue with their position, despite health issues that they may have, despite their age, is ultimately up to the people that put them in their office uh, and the people that elect them as their leaders in the case of Mitch McConnell. So it's really up to uh, Mitch McConnell's fellow Republicans as to whether or not uh, he has the wherewithal to continue serving as the leader for Republicans in the Senate. Uh, I haven't heard any Republican in the Senate uh, talk about, you know, replacing Mitch McConnell or asking him to step down in any way on the record or off the record. They're very supportive of their Republican leader. And uh, to me, that's the way that that those stories should be uh, covered. And, you know, I think it's it's fair to ask questions about whether uh, public servants uh, can continue to 
do their job despite health issues? It's fair to ask that question of someone like a John Fetterman. Uh, but if voters have voted them in and they are comfortable with them serving in their capacity, then, you know, they've answered the question for us. So is it a member of the media's responsibility to inform the public if they believe somebody lacks the mental focus to do the job? Or is that something that, as you said, the, con- the, the voters of Kentucky and Pennsylvania and, and America need to take up? Well, you know, we saw you saw the video yesterday coming out of Covington, Kentucky. A few weeks ago, you saw the video happening on the Senate side of the Capitol, uh, and the video speaks for itself. So, you know, it's not a matter of uncovering uh, some sort of information in regarding uh, Mitch McConnell's health. You can see it for yourself. And then we see the response from his office, his office saying that he was uh, lightheaded and took a pause. I think it was more than that. You know, it's more than just a pause. I mean, I've seen a pause. You've seen a pause. People take pauses. That was 30 seconds of freezing. Uh, And we've seen this play out twice now. And I think it's fair to ask questions about, you know, how is the senator from Kentucky's health? Uh, Can he continue to do his job? Is this a concern uh, that uh, voters should have in Kentucky in particular? And is it a concern that uh, Republicans who serve in the Senate should have? After all, he's their leader. So, you know, we'll see, you know, what next week uh, when the Senate comes back, uh, what uh, types of questions get asked of senators. And it's a reasonable question to ask Senator McConnell's fellow Republicans. Uh, but we'll see what, you know, if, if, if there's any daylight that we see separating uh, various senators in the way they view Mitch McConnell's abilities to continue in his position. Very well explained. Last question. Uh, it appears the Trump campaign will be a courthouse one day, a campaign speech the next. A courthouse yeah, one day, right. a campaign speech the next. Yeah. There's no precedent here. You don't know how this plays out with the American people. I don't know how it plays out with the American people. I would imagine uh, there are opinions all over the place in relation to this. But but there have been dates or a date set in the D.C. trial. How is that in relation to the primary campaigns? Well, you know, all you need to do is, you know, just look at the calendar and you see March the 4th is the start date for that D.C. trial. And I think that Judge Tanya Tuckin will stick to that date. Uh, She'll set out deadlines for motions, replying to those motions, deadlines for herself for ruling on those motions. But she really wants to get this trial started on March the 4th. March the 5th is Super Tuesday. That's when 14 separate states uh, vote in their presidential primaries, uh, choosing who they would like to see as the Republican nominee. Uh, A week later is Georgia. A week after that is Florida that votes in its primary. It's going to impact uh, Donald Trump's ability to go out and campaign like he did in 2016, for instance, when he was uh, running in a competitive race for the Republican nomination. And he's going to be spending a considerable time in the courtroom in the first half of 2024. That's pretty evident. And his campaign needs to recognize that. But Despite all of that, you know, you've seen uh, the one post-election poll that I've seen, which was from Emerson College, and Donald Trump still maintains a double-digit lead uh, over his closest competitor. That's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Well explained. John, thank you for your time. Have a great Labor Day weekend. We'll talk next weekend, sir. I look forward to it. Thanks again, Ken. Have a great Labor Day weekend. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. Thank you. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker. Uh, we mentioned Gray because they own – WMBF, thanks to um, uh, Dockery Andrew, uh, yeah, for uh, joining us. Andrew was kind enough to join us a couple of days there to give us a an update, a local update on uh, Hurricane Adelia. Uh, Great Television owns the NBC affiliate in Myrtle Beach, MBF, and WIS. 
the NBC affiliate in in Columbia. It's it's kind of interesting. We're talking about this. Excuse me. We're talking about DeSantis a little bit this morning, um, and I think John agreed with me that. And it's not DeSantis is a bad guy. I mean, nobody's saying that. I mean, nobody's saying, man, he, you know, he's 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 uh, he's he's demonstrated an, an inability to be a good candidate. He's demonstrated an inability to cut through the clutter, and there's a lot of clutter there. I mean, when when you've got Trump in one corner, and you've got everybody else in the other corner trying to find a lane to cut into that fifty percent. Uh, vote that Trump has, not on lockdown. I don't think he's got 30, 50% of the vote on lockdown. I think he's got 35% of the vote on lockdown. I think 15% of Trump voters are more than willing to consider somebody other than Donald Trump. But you got to convince them. I mean, you got you got to sell that whatever it is. And, and Chris Christie has not been able to sell that Trump is too corrupt. Um, you know, we, we've got to, dis- uh, the, the party's going to struggle if it continues to go down this road of, of disarray. And, and then you've got Haley. Um, you know, I think Nikki had a good debate. I, I don't think she helped herself that much. I think where Nikki demonstrated competency is where Americans in the Republican Party are losing interest, and that is foreign policy. I, I just, it, it's hard for me to believe. I think Nikki demonstrated competency and an understanding of foreign policy. I don't think her competency nor understanding were reflective of where the majority of Republican primary voters are. That's a weird disconnect, but that's kind of where we are. N- Nikki basically said about American, follow- American foreign policy what you would expect someone in the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, to say, and that's just not where our nation is. We touched on this in the last segment. When the National Review and Heritage Foundation are at one another, I mean, I would imagine there are bow ties being pulled off men everywhere when these two groups go at it. Um, <laughs> but... but <laughs> Well, I mean, I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, but no, in, in all honesty, when you, I mean, it, it, it's becoming increasingly obvious to many Americans that there is no plan. I mean, that, that there's, there's an interest and a willingness to fund the endeavor in Ukraine, and we can argue, you know, um, NATO status, non-NATO status, southern border, one more to port. So I mean, there are a lot of things out there that we can debate, but at the end of the day, Right now, the American taxpayer's involvement is funding and more funding and more funding. And at some point in time, the American taxpayer has said, I'd like to know where our money's being spent. I'd like to know what America's objectives are. What is the plan at the end of the day? And the Heritage Foundation um, allowed some of those opinions to be expressed at an event they had. And the National Review uh, another bowtie-clad group of neocons said it was a moral obscenity that they would allow that sort of conversation to be had. And um, and one of the writers at the National Review, uh, Dominic Pino, said, and I'll quote it. I, I think it's hilarious. You ready? Um, he talked about the Heritage Foundation, and he said, not all of the money goes to Ukrainians. Much of it goes to U.S. defense contractors, which employ Americans and contribute to U.S. economic um, output. So, so my interpretation is the Ukrainian support, excuse me, the American support of Ukraine is a jobs program. I mean, it's, it's I mean not, that's a bizarre thing for them to say, in but, my opinion. But, but, Rev, when you are a true believer, and this goes back to what I've, I've not argued with Drew with, but we've debated this, is the donor class, because the Heritage Foundation gets their funding from somewhere. The National Review gets their funding from somewhere. It's not all about the um the 799 subscription 
rest assured that when the Heritage Foundation sets out on a mission to find out what the facts are, those facts will be influenced by funding. I mean, the Heritage Foundation accepts contributions from a lot of different sources, same with the National Review. And they've historically kind of towed the company line on neoconservatism and globalist economic policies. And all of a sudden, the, the voting base, those who have historically trusted what the Heritage Foundation said, trusted what the National Review said, they've had a change of heart. They're not as neoconservative as they were. They're not as globalist as they were. And the Heritage Foundation seems to realize that if we're going to operate in this space, we've got to be in, we can't be asymmetrical. I mean, that's the word I use a lot. We can't be asymmetrical with the Republican base. And the National Review says, yes, we can. In the name of honor, integrity, virtue, I don't know why they said that. But, but I mean, bankrolling foreign war, wars with no in-game strategy in the name of making the American economy stronger, Good luck with that argument, but that's the National Review's argument. That's where they've landed today, and it's just interesting to me that they still believe that's where the base is. Now, once again, if the base is here but your funding is there, uh, who do you? I mean, who pays the bills? Does the base pay the bill, or does the you know the funding pay the bills? And I'm not saying that Raytheon is brought to you by Raytheon, or excuse me, um, National Review is brought to you by. Raytheon, but but I, I do believe some of those some of those forces dabble in the affairs of the Heritage Foundation and uh, and National Review, and that's where the Republican Party finds itself. And it's complicated. It's extremely complicated. Now now Drew would argue, I think, and has it is uh, a misalignment. There is no doubt that there are many many office holders and opinion leaders in the Republican Party who ascribe to the traditions of neoconservatism and globalism. But it's not asymmetrical. I argue it is. I mean, my argument, and I think my argument is somewhat validated by the Heritage Foundation deciding to um, do something the National Review considers morally obscene by allowing some non-neocons and non-globalists to participate in their um, storied symposium. Think Tank USA. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Thursdays uh, in this particular week. Labor Day weekend is, is always, I mean, I could easily say, Rev, it's my favorite weekend of the year. The One of the main, it's, it's racing in Darlington. That's always been a big deal to me. Oh, yeah. um, it's the, the time of year that the Gamecocks in Alabama have the same record in college football. <laughs> True. So, um, you know, what, what, what may happen in the next three months, nobody knows. Uh, historically, a certain thing has happened that is not uh, so, so, so friendly to Gamecock faithful. But it's just, I, I don't know, it's the end of summer. It's the beginning of, um, you know, the, 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 the weather begins to change a little bit shortly after. It's college football, it's race, it's NASCAR. I don't care what the calendar says. It's the end of summer. Summer begins on Memorial Day. When you grow up going to the beach, it ends on, it ends on Labor Day. So we're going to take off tomorrow. I think you've got to wait, make your way to, to Florida, if yep, I'm not mistaken, yep. to take care of some of your um, res mom passed away, and he's got some house cleaning to do yep. uh, that down Making in Florida. Business. Um, but anyway, uh, we, we shuffled some things around. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party, uh, agreed to come in. Drew's going to sit down with us a bit this morning. And then after the radio show, we're going to tape a podcast. And, and I want you to get to know Drew, because Drew's an important figure 
in the Republican Party. I don't want no part of the job that he has. I like stirring it up. I don't like trying to put it back together where, where it's supposed to be. But um, that's why this segment is going to be extra interesting to me because <laughs> Drew is an official, I mean, GOP guy on the in the state, obviously top of the state party, and then in the in national politics. And I've always kind of wondered what these guys, these official guys, think of you. So, so I think they ran me off. I don't tell you what they think of me. Yeah, so I want to find out. This is very, very interesting. They, they ran me off. That's what they. That's what they think of me. But no, in all seriousness, uh, and and I mean this sincerely. It's easy to host a radio show and tell people what they should or should not do. Mm -hmm. It's easy to be a voter and say, you know, why can't they do this and why can't they do that? I got accused yesterday of being a, a milk toast fence sitter. <laughs> I'm That's a true. lot of things. I, I refuse to be called. But in all honesty, Drew, it is a very, uh, first of all, good morning and thank you for joining us. Good and morning, I mean that sir. sincerely. Thanks for making your way over here and being a part of this feeble Happy attempt to. at Radio Brilliance. But, but I want to... I want to kind of drill down on this because you grew up in the Republican Party. You've watched the ebbs and flows, the good times, the bad times. Mm -hmm. I argue that there's something different this time. Mm -hmm. You you may not agree, but but I want you to kind of um, what led you down the road of wanting to be SCGOP chairman? Oh man, that's not something you wake up uh, you know when you're you know, 10 years old and decide you want to do. I mean, you just, uh, I mean, did you decide, you know, 30 years ago, you wanted to be sitting here this morning doing mm -hmm. pontificating mm -hmm. about, uh, <laughs> I, I decided you know, probably not. Well, Drew, I was captured as a child <laughs> in a family business and I began strategizing a way to get out of that. Right. right. And, and, and politics looked to be kind of a, a an interesting <laughs> avenue to travel, but, but no, nobody, I mean, a, a young kid, a male yeah. wakes up, wanted to be a fireman or a policeman, a right, quarterback of the right. green Bay Packers, you know, pitch for the yeah. Atlanta Braves. No, nobody well, wakes up wanting to be SCGOP chairman. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I got involved uh, in politics um, well, really as soon as I got into college or even really in late high school. Uh, I was writing op-eds to the newspaper when I was in 10th grade. You know, I mean, it's just so civics and just government in general always interested me. Policies, why things are the way they are and, you know, stuff that needs to be or should be changed. You know, start to read a lot. Uh, get more interested in it and then get off into college. And in that, uh, let's see, that was in 87. So 88, we were actually, when I went into college in 87, right now, we were about where we are now in this presidential primary cycle. You know, you had uh, George H.W. Bush running, Bob Dole, Pat Robertson. I was a Robertson guy, uh, worked with that campaign. And that, that got me even more involved in it, college Republicans, young Republicans. And so, you know, it's just a, a progression. Uh, you go on from doing that to doing campaigns and, um, you know, first campaign I ever ran was, uh, or got paid to run. That's when you're a professional when somebody mm -hmm. gives you money to do something, right? That doesn't mean you're good at it. Cause they, they let you do money, it for nothing so for a long time. So, uh, uh, that was actually in 1990. Uh, I, uh, consulted on a County coroner's race. Now you want to do something tough, make people care about who picks up the dead bodies, you know, or whatever. Well, why that matters that they be your guy. Uh, but we did win by the way. Uh, did that in a state house race that year, a county supervisor's race down in uh, Berkeley County, and then went forward from there doing state house, state senate races, worked on governor's race in 94 when, when Beasley ran, uh, and, uh, you know, going forward from there for the next basically 20 years. Uh, then got involved with a lot of grassroots conservative organizations, groups like Christian Coalition and some other pro-life groups, and did uh, conservative policy stuff, grassroots organizing and so forth. Uh, and then... Working with uh, the uh, eventually, then working with the RNC, 
uh, doing uh, faith engagement. So I was the faith engagement coordinator for the eastern half of the United States. So Maine down to Florida, out to you know Arkansas, uh, you know working to get folks in churches registered to vote uh, and make trying to get the the percentage voting percentages up in churches. Uh, did that for two cycles, and, and over the years, obviously, I've worked a lot with the state party, the folks who were in leadership in the state party. Uh, helped get at least uh, three, four other individuals actually elected state party chairman over the years, back since Barry Wynn was chairman back in 1989. Um, and, you know, we just kind of got to the point where, you know, the last guy wasn't going to run again and, you know, looked around and thought about it. And I mean, it, w- when you invest a lot of your time and yourself in something over a long period of time, you care about, you know, how it, how healthy it is. Uh, and, you know, you and I have talked about this before in terms of the importance of uh, the, the party as a vehicle for the conservative movement, which is what it's been to greater and lesser degrees of success in different places around the country, uh, you know, since Barry Goldwater ran back in the in 64. Uh, it's the vehicle. I mean, parties in and of themselves don't stand for anything. People stand for something. What people are in the party and what do they stand for? What do they want to do? Well, in order to get from A to B politically, you need a vehicle, uh, you know, and to you know, help run campaigns to get elected. Uh, and so it's important that it be healthy. Uh, and, you know, so that's something I've always cared a great deal about. And so, you know, this opportunity was there and it's another chance to sort of take it to the next level, get involved in that. Uh, and, you know, we've had a string of successes here for the last three election cycles in South Carolina, looking for another one this year. Uh, the uh, co-chairman opportunity with the RNC opened up, uh, you know, this past November, the guy uh, that previously held the job wasn't running again. Uh, and put myself out there for that. Uh, we had two other candidates run. We went three ballots, and you know, I, here we are now. Here we are now. <laughs> okay, let, let, let's hang on to that for a second. So it's obvious your faith is a big part of your life. I mean, your your faith is probably I don't want to say the anchor in your politics, but it's what you base, you know, what you believe about policy A or policy B or issue A or issue B. Um, believe it or not, I share that sentiment I, in, in right. kind of the weirdest way imaginable. Um, but 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 in all honesty. You've said this, and I agree with this. Conservatism is based on it works. Mm-hmm. Let's stick with it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. But but the public have a short attention span. <laughs> the public likes new. The public likes, is it part of your responsibility to try and figure out a way to put a fresh coat of paint on conservative from time to time, conservatism mm-hmm. from time to time? Sure. Well, I, it, th- that gets the message. So it's, well, principles are one thing. How you talk about those principles and how you apply those principles to issues of the day is another thing. Uh, how you may, you know, uh, message to different demographics might be another thing. Um, but the principles are the same. So, uh, you know, as you point out, conservatism at its root is really about conserving, conserving tradition, conserving the way things work, conserving culture, you know, things that have made us what we are, you know, if we think of it in terms of, uh, you want to go way back in time, you know, Western uh, civilization. Talking about the Magna Carta. I mean, you can really trace it back to the Magna Carta. And then what made us what we are, what helped us be successful in conserving those things, not being subject to, you know, radical change. Uh, And, you know, want to sort of look at something, pick it up, turn it over and look at it a few times before we, you know, actually change things. Uh, That's sort of at the root of it. And then you can apply, you know, different elements of that to different, you know, policies and liberties and how we do various things. And, you know, whether, you know, you've actually, you know, got the right to do A, if it's going to impact somebody else and so forth. Uh, you know, we're not uh, uh, extreme uh, libertarians. Uh, you know, there are some folks out there who are more libertarians and, you know, who, who 
you know, sometimes, unfortunately, we'll get a little bit uh, sideways with uh, folks in the conservative movement. Well, it's, it's, honestly, it just kind of gets amusing sometimes because you'll have folks who I would characterize as extreme libertarians who would take issue with conservatives and say that these conservatives are rhinos. And I'm thinking, yeah, what? Really? No. I mean, there, there's a party for libertarianism. If you want to be an extreme libertarian, it's called the Libertarian Party. Uh, Republican Party is the home of the conservative movement. Uh, that's what's important to me. You know, I didn't get elected chairman to be chairman of the Libertarian Party. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't have some libertarian-ish inclinations occasionally. Uh, so, yeah, but to me, again, it goes back to what are our core conservative principles? How do we message those things in a way that's relevant to what's going on now? And that'll change from day to day, year to year, and candidate to candidate. Um, you know, and I think um, you and I have talked about this before. Uh how in the 16 cycle, you know, when at the time candidate Trump began to talk about issues that I think it's fair to say a lot of what we would refer to as the Beltway Republican crowd had left and moved the field from, say, issues like immigration, issues like trade, and things that are tangential to that. Um, and as he began to talk about these things in a way that resonated with the base of the party, which had not moved on those issues over that period of time, uh, the rubber band sort of snapped back. Okay. Uh, that's my explanation for how, you know, one candidate was able to best 16 other candidates who were experienced, respectable candidates with solid fundraising basis and had a, you know, history of success in the party. The message resonated. So, you know, and so to me, number one, sticking with our principles. Number two, speaking about things in a way that resonates with people, how they can see that principle and how we're applying it's relevant to their daily lives. Uh, and in a way that's, you know, uh, what I would say, you know, ideally the, in a way that's winsome, you know, now sometimes people get a little sideways on this, but I remember, you know, what Ronald Reagan said years ago, uh, you know, I'm a conservative. I'm just not mad about it. You know, how you talk about things matters. Um, and you know, that's, uh, but I think authenticity is probably one of the most important things, uh, because, We've got so much of what I would refer to as plastic, you know, politics, you know, things that sometimes even on both sides of the aisle look the same, feel the same, sound the same, et cetera. Uh, you know, when somebody comes along that really people can look at and tell that they are genuinely authentic, that, that cuts through the clutter, in my opinion. Uh, that matters. And so that's one of the things that I think if, if, uh, if no other lessons get taken from what's happened in Republican politics in, say, the last six years, whatever you think of any candidates, from Trump to anybody else, if, we, if our people learn no other lesson, then I would say two key things. One, when liberal media or Democrats call you out on what you believe, don't hide under the desk. When they start calling you the names, you know, don't shirk. And, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend anybody, and I'll be quiet. No. Say it louder. Say it twice as loud. You know, number one, because— if you really believe it, you know, why would you stop saying it? Number two, people out there want to see somebody stand up for what they believe in because so many people, especially on our side, usually who, who aren't used to the white hot spotlight and the harsh questions, you know, they tend to shirk and hide under the desk and don't want to offend anybody. You know, people want to see somebody double down on what they believe in. That's the first thing. Uh, the base wants that. Voters want that. Even sometimes voters who disagree with you respect that. And then the second thing is the authenticity, not trying to be something that you're not, you know, be what you are, just, you know, maybe uh, take it up a notch, take it up to 11, so to speak, you know, or whatever. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody would uh, 
would suggest that you are not what you are and being authentic about it here on the radio every morning. You know, you can't be on the radio every morning and not be authentic, I don't think. They'll, they'll smell you out sooner or later, rest assured. So I think those are two key lessons we need to take when it comes to messaging. So, so how do we, let, let's take that, and let's, let's apply kind of a macro. Mm-hmm. How do we take those people that Trump brought to the party? Mm-hmm. They, they're not sure they're conservative. You're not sure they're conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but something attracted them to that authenticity. That sure. that candidate said things in a very different way. Is it your job to convince those people mm-hmm. they have more in common with this party and, and be a part of this party moving sure. past the time that Donald Trump exits state, whether that's now or in twenty twenty eight? Right, right. Yeah, that's that's part of our job. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, again, you know, we do that in in a lot of different ways. You know, we look at our platform versus the Democrat Party's platform. Uh, you know, where are they on key issues that these people care about where are we on those issues do we need to message those things in a better way to communicate with them to grab them to pull them over into the party you know it number one you're happy for anybody who walks into the voting booth and you know pushes a republican button or votes for your candidates that's one thing trying to keep them over the long term is equally important uh and uh, you know every um you can go back in time and i'll just use my own experience from when I came involved, you know, going forward, you know, you had, as I pointed out, what I would call the, the Christian conservative wave, you know, in 88 and the early nineties when Robertson got a, ran, come into the party and, you know, and then you go forward a little bit in time and you had sort of the Ross Perot folks who, you know, they went over here for a while, but then a lot of them eventually came back, it came into the Republican party. Uh, and, you know, uh, Rand Paul and, um, you know, just, uh, you, all the way now to you know, well, the Tea Party way. Let's don't forget about that. And then Trump's campaign. He's like waves coming in and hitting the beach. And sometimes, you know, what happens when a wave comes in, it goes back out. But what's important is what does the wave leave up on the beach? Who stays? So, you know, I'm one who came in with that early Christian conservative wave. You know, I stayed. Uh, some other folks got, you know, dispirited and went home. And they, maybe they still vote. And they're independent or whatever. They didn't get involved in the party, per se, organizationally. Uh, you had a lot of folks come in with a Tea Party. Some of them stayed. Some of them, you know, went back home. They still vote. They're not necessarily involved with the organization. Same thing happens here. Uh, and so w- what we've had over this period of our lifetime, uh, which the PD is an excellent example of this, in my opinion, is the different pieces. If you think of the uh, a winning conservative coalition as sort of a jigsaw puzzle, the different pieces of that puzzle over time have been put together to make the winning coalition that we've got now. You have way back early in the day, the economic wave of, you know, conservatives who rejected the New Deal, et cetera, et cetera, sort of the first wave of Republicans here in South Carolina. Uh, then you had uh, social conservatives, Christian conservatives, uh, you know, again, Tea Party crowds, some of the Ross Perot types. And then now we've seen, you know, what came into the party since uh, President Trump ran. Uh, and particularly as we look at here in the PD, you've had, you know, again, I, I think that the final pieces of a comprehensive conservative winning coalition put together doesn't mean we all agree on all things all the time by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but look at the results. I mean, you know, we've got, uh, uh, you know, counties again here in the PD where we actually beat Democrats on straight ticket voting, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, for all the years you've thought of South Carolina as being a red state, which I'm sure for a lot of people has been a long time. You know, I tell folks on the RNC from other states around the country this. You know, yeah, we've been voting Republican for president since Eisenhower, except for that one time when that guy from Georgia. Uh, but, you know, other than that, P 
people were voting Republican, and then they were splitting their ticket the rest of the way down. And then eventually they vote Republican for president, maybe for Senate, for Congress, but Democrat the rest of the way down. Eventually that line where they were splitting their ticket just gradually kept getting lower and lower and lower. They'd vote Republican for governor, et cetera, but they're still voting Democrat for state house, state senate, county council, sheriff, whatever. And that line kept getting lower in every cycle. And the straight ticket numbers kept changing in every cycle. Till seven years ago, it was the first time in the history of our party in the 16 election, we beat Democrats on straight ticket voting by two points. Beat them by eight points in 18, 17 points in 20, and 27 points last year. Uh, and winning more county council races, sheriff's races, et cetera. Why? Because those 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 community ties that they had to a lot of those folks are beginning to break. You know, well, I go to church with the guy who's on county council. I'm voting for him, or I know the sheriff. I'm related to him. Now you're seeing a lot of what we've seen with national politics and issues overwhelm a lot of that, particularly because of how far to the left the Democrat Party has moved, just culturally afield from people like here in the PD, quite frankly. Uh, which have helped amp up uh, that, uh, that you know, success we've had. So, and I'll say also organizationally, when I got elected chairman in 17, I think there were four counties in this state where we didn't even have a county party chairman, nobody who'd even put the hat on and volunteer to be the chairman. Uh, now we're organizing every county, and in, uh, you know, one of those counties, I think it was Marlboro County, actually, where, you know, four years ago we had 45 people, I think it was, show up to organize the county Republican Party organization. Just amazing, and why? Because those issues are resonating with people. Let's let's, let's take a break. We got to pay some bills here. Believe it or not, we still believe in gainful employment and and uh, and, and, pay for this yeah, and, and compensation. <laughs> yeah, if you need another cup, we'll get you another cup. No question. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, co-chair of the National Party, kind enough to join us this morning for kind of an extended back and forth. He'll be with us after the radio show. We'll do a podcast that we'll publish next week. Next week, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Back in just a few moments. Heavy on the former there. Heavy on the former this Thursday morning. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, co-chair of the National uh, Party, is with us, kind of um, walking us through what it's like to be uh, an official. I mean, I have the luxury of not being official at anything. I've got a lot of freedom and liberties and flexibilities to say and do what I choose to do. But I want to go back to something you said um, during the uh, the first segment, and and that is uh, when Trump shows up, you said it during the break, the laws of political gravity seem to be suspended. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sitting in a parking lot. My wife went in a dress shop in Hartsville, and I'm sitting in the parking lot, and there's a show on, and he says, I just don't know that he can get away with this. And I'm saying, what has he said now? And it was the, you know, the Megyn Kelly. Right, you know, I'm bleeding. Right, right, and I'm right. going like, you can't say that. I mean, you just cannot say that and get away with it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't care how different he is. I don't care how out of the mainstream he may be. You can't. He did, Drew. Was was it was it a a was it him or was it us? In other words, were we so yearning for something unrehearsed? Not che- you talked about the, the you know the plastic checking the box kind of candidate. Yeah, I mean, was that why we forgave I, him for so many I, things he did? I, I, I think the biggest thing though goes back to the issues that we were talking about earlier. Uh, you know, again, and so four years earlier. I think it was uh, Rick Santorum was the first one who really began to, and a little bit Gingrich back in 12 as well. Uh, but I'd say Rick Santorum probably gets the most credit for being one of the, the highest profile Republicans prior to that to begin to raise some of these issues, immigration-related issues, globalism-related issues, uh, things that are tangential to that, you know, from the, the local factory shutting down, et cetera. I mean, and... So out of all the candidates that were running at the time, he's the one who gave the greatest voice to that. Uh, 
and and again it was like you know uh um you know setting a match uh to you know some kindling uh people had been waiting for that for a long time like i said i mean the, i think a lot of what we would call the beltway establishment had moved away from that and the rubber band then snapped back and you know and you can tell uh by the way um you were talking you were you know sort of alluding to earlier you know uh, uh how much is this going to change the way we're talking about things and so forth I think you can see that now and over the course of the last good number of years is how many Republicans uh, at virtually every level are talking about those issues now and have been for the last five to six years. Uh, yeah, that's because they've uh, they've gotten a much more um, renewed sense of where the base really is on those issues. Maybe their political antennas got a little bit better, uh, and, you know, rightly so, uh, because, you know, if, uh, if, if the, the party— uh, and not just organizationally, but the party, you know, generally, you know, those who consider themselves Republicans or conservatives, you know, even occasionally, if they're not engaged by the issues you're talking about, then nobody else is going to be, you know. So, so number one, you've got to get that crowd engaged. Uh, and, you know, we had for a while had folks who were, you know, not addressing everything that was important to them. And, you know, and, and, and like, that's not to say that, uh, you know, we, we all – you have to have unanimity on everything sure. all the time. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, we're all you know, different, but uh, I think those that was the biggest hole I would say uh, in Republican um, messaging in general nationally up until that point in time. Let, let, let me ask you. You're, I mean, I, you obviously would have an opinion of this. So, so I read a lot. I try to understand a lot. I have opinions that, that sometimes are not in agreement with what I'm reading. But, but I saw a story a couple of days ago, and I thought of you. I really did, when I, and I knew you were coming in, and I said, okay, I'm going to hold on to this. We touched on it this morning, mm-hmm. but but the National Review and Heritage Foundation are hardly ever at odds with one another, mm-hmm. and and they are now on, on the yeah. Ukraine funding. I mean, you, you probably right. know the article I'm talking about. I mean, there, there's a there's a um, th- there's always been a c- kind of a commonality. It's expected that the wall, excuse me, the um, the National Review and Heritage Foundation mm-hmm. are going to kind of push a neoconservative agenda. I mean, they just are. They historically have. And all of a sudden, the Heritage Foundation takes exception with National Review. National Review takes exception with the Heritage Foundation. Is that good? Is, yeah, is mean, it good that yeah. some of these expected alliances at times have these very public disagreements? Uh, yeah, it's healthy. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, you know, the, if uh, who was it that said, uh, if everybody's thinking alike, somebody's not thinking, you know. I mean, yeah, I think that that's good uh, to because what you're talking about here, I guess, in the end of the day, what they're arguing about is how we should view the issue of Ukraine through the lens of our conservative principles. And they're disagreeing over how that applies. You know, and I, I think some of it, and in, in when you when an issue like that uh, gets into the middle of a presidential campaign, sometimes, you know, uh, I think it's charitable to say things can get a little oversimplified, you know, sometimes by some of the some of the campaigns potentially and different parties to the, to the argument. Uh, it's kind of like a... Uh, an evangelist that came through our church one time years ago uh, was talking about, uh, you know, uh, Calvinism versus Armenianism. And he said, uh, you know, it's possible to fall off a horse on either side. You know, you can go to an extreme on an issue in either direction. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that might amount to what our differences are, you know, that we just want to get a little too far in one direction or another on the same issues. Not that, uh, you know, that um, we don't have an interest in what's going on in Europe. We do. How many wars did we fight there? So we have a little bit of an interest in that. And it's also not that we don't have other problems we need to take care of here. We do, clearly, starting with the border. 
uh you know so so like i said i i think i think that principle applies it's, it's possible to take it too far in one direction or another so you're talking about the art of pragmatism so let, let's go there for a second you are a god-fearing um southern republican i i would be a god-fearing southern republican we got to convince voters that aren't god-fearing southern republicans in sure. pennsylvania Sure. In, in Nevada and Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, hold on to these we've made gains with, yep. within Ohio. Does that complicate your world? I mean, you've got these set of values mm-hmm. and beliefs that you adhere to and, and are fundamentally part of your life. Yeah. But but then as a co-chair of the National mm-hmm. Party, you got to figure out a way to get an ele- a Republican elected in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and some of these places that are dissimilar sure. to, to the way you well, see the world. Number one, you got to win. Period. I mean, you know, losers don't make policy. If you don't win, then you are not going to have an impact. Uh, and so what do you have to do to win? I want, and it's a, a, one of a, you know my mantras, I want the most conservative candidate who can win. You know, because it doesn't matter, you know, if you're 100% pure and, you know, you flop and lose by 10 points, and you know, what good is that to the conservative movement? What good is that to the party? What good is that to our ability to make change? Uh, you know, you want the best candidate, most conservative candidate, who can win. And that's going to be different from state to state. Uh, so it's the same thing, you know, looking at things on the national level. You know, I just came away from uh, the meeting we had in Milwaukee last week. You know, we had an RNC meeting there. That's why we had the presidential debate there. So we could all attend and be there, have a lot of conversations with state chairmen from across the country. And that and that job, by the way, has the highest about the highest turnover in American politics. I'll say the average state party chairman in this country last, and they did this average, I think, five years ago, was 18 months not even a full two-year term. We've got 16 new state party chairmen just since January when I got elected as co-chairman of the party. Uh, so, you know, they're all facing this kind of stuff too. And some of them have experience in politics, some of them not as much. Some of them are good at fundraising, some aren't, some need help. You know, they got a lot of different problems. But at the end of the day, when I'm talking to them and trying to help them, just like when I'm talking to, say, folks at the county level, I don't live where you live. I live in Columbia. Things are different where you are. You know the people where you are. Uh, if you're not getting the feedback from the people who live there and have the connections and know what's going on, know the reputations of the different people that you're dealing with, and you know, uh, uh, and also you know what their potential resources are and so forth, then then you know you're an idiot. I mean, <laughs> just to be blunt about it, uh, because again, uh, they, they've got the you know, it's like having a you know a Sherpa, you know, to go mountain climbing or, or you know, the Himalayas or whatever. You need somebody who knows the way and who's been there. Uh, and, you know, if people aren't buying what you're selling, you're going to have a problem. Let, let, let's stay stay here for a second because I want to get your take on this. And, and once again, Drew McKissick is going to be with us at 10 o'clock this morning. We're taping. I'm looking at Rev because he knows all the, the mm-hmm. logistics and formatics mm-hmm. of it. At 10 o'clock, we're taking, taking the pod, taping a podcast that will not have any um, any commercial breaks. So, so when... When we try to win national elections, do people like me hurt or help? That there is no doubt that talk radio and conservative media. I mean, I'm looking at Tucker Carlson on the screen here. Right. I mean, Tucker right. means a lot in the primary. Right. I mean, it, there's Limbaugh meant more than anybody in a primary. Right. Talk radio right. as an industry matters in in a primary. 100%. Do we hurt when our candidates try to win in places like Pennsylvania, in places like Nevada, in places like Arizona? And how can we be more helpful? Because once again, 100% of nothing is what? It's nothing. Well, it's nothing. nothing from nothing leaves nothing, as the song says. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, helpful. Absolutely. I mean, look, one of the, when I was in uh, 
college, let's see, I guess it was 89 or not, when I was running those campaigns we talked about earlier, 1990, it was when somebody first told me, like, you listen to that uh, guy on the radio, uh, I don't know where he's from, this national, they're starting to carry it on the local, you know, talk radio down in Charleston, like, what's that, is the guy's limbo, limbaugh, something like that, first time I listened to him, I was like, my gosh, you know, this guy saying stuff that I'm thinking, you know, he hadn't heard that on the radio before, that mattered to a lot of people. That got a whole lot of people engaged. Out of everybody in American politics that I can think of, certainly in our lifetimes, I can't think of anybody who's probably had more, um, uh, let's call it, uh, you know, intellectual uh, and activist children, you know, so to speak, running around out there around the country than, than Rush Limbaugh because of the impact he had. And other po- folks who have gotten into a business that he blazed a trail for, like yourself. Uh, so did it make a difference? Does it help energize the base and make folks more engaged in the party and civics and so forth and taking issues seriously? Yes, 100%. You know, on the whole, occasionally, you know, just like anything in life, you can have people who can, you know, say or do things that might be less than helpful when you're rolling up on election day. Uh, so especially when you talk about places like that, you know, and I've, I've done shows in uh pennsylvania did one in philadelphia uh, about a month ago uh one in uh i think it's columbus ohio you know i, I would in in actually one of them brought this up on the air you know talking about how you know, we can't necessarily be 100 percent pure here in fill in the blank state uh we've got to win uh and you know losing clarifies things for you you know those guys you know who lost senate races or other things like that and you know they 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 see you know and this, this has a long-term impact on our ability to actually affect things. So I'll take a guy who's with me 70% of the time versus somebody who's against me 100% of the time any day of the week, twice on Sunday. Is it fair for us to challenge leadership as a yeah. as an industry? I mean, sure. the, the world of punditry is famous for telling everybody what they should do because they don't really have to do anything themselves. Got about a, <laughs> got about a minute here. Is it, is it offensive to you when people like us challenge no, what, what no, you're doing? No, I mean, look, I appreciate one of my, my – points is, since I've been in a state chairman of the party uh, is I'm happy to listen to people who complain long as they also work they help okay so you know that that's your ticket to complain as far as I'm concerned people who complain and then don't do anything won't hit a lick of a stick no uh-uh, I, I got no time for that uh, same thing goes to me obviously you're out here doing things communicating with people it makes a difference getting our folks engaged and educated that makes a difference so, look, if we're not willing to have conversations about and justify what we're doing and what we believe, then you need to find another gig. Well, explain. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. <laughs> the, the, I mean, we got to stop insulting Rev that way. I mean, oh, we really yeah. and truly have to stop insulting uh, Rev that way. Eight, <laughs> four, that three, up, I may be offended. 843 uh, It feels like Friday on Monday, but it's actually Thursday at 9. Uh, we're moving things around today. Rev's going to Florida to – um. To deal with his mom's belongings. Your mom died when, Rev? It was uh, end of July, July 27th. Yeah, and you've had to deal with ago. some things, yeah. and there's some personal belongings down there. That, Just um, taking care of business. Taking you know. care of business. You're right. As um, I mean, it's not probate. It's more, you know, um, sentimental things that matter to a family. The, the stuff. and you know, The stuff. There you go. Yeah. The stuff one leaves behind when they um, when they exit their earthly existence. Uh, so, so he's doing that. I got some things. Anyway, I'll just leave it there. I'm I'm not going to Florida taking care of family affairs. I'm doing something else. I'll, I'll just I'll just <laughs> leave stuff it there. to do. But anyway, Jay Jordan and Philip Lowe were kind enough and gracious enough, as they always are, to um accommodate our schedule. They're here um this morning. Uh, Representative Jordan, how are you? Good morning. Representative Lowe, how are you? Good morning. So so let's go down this road for a second, um, because I'm going to get your time. We touched on this last week, 
And, uh, and Drew was with us earlier. He'll be with us again as we do a podcast. There is no doubt that Donald Trump is a dominant figure, the dominant figure in the Republican Party. If you're in the business I'm in, more Trump. I mean, forget more cowbell. I want more <laughs> Trump, more Trump, more Trump. The more we talk about Trump, the better our business is. But it does put officials in the Republican Party in a complicated situation. Drew tried to explain, you know, that, that Trump touched a nerve. And, and out of that came a, a nomination and a subsequent presidency. And then, you know, a run for re-election. And we can question what happened in, 20, in 2020 or not. But as Republican officeholders in a red state like South Carolina, does it confuse you? Um, Jay, you and I have talked a little bit about this. You, you know, historically, the bases believe this. And, and now we're in kind of an evolution. And we're not, I mean, all, none of us are sure what the base believes believes today. Does it complicate your life? Do you have to pay and give closer consideration to the things you've always believed the Republican Party stood for? And some of the priorities may have been shuffled around a bit. I don't know. When I look at President Trump, I, I kind of divide it up into a couple of different categories. You know, as far as the political side of President Trump, I don't know. You, you know, you hear him referenced as the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Um, I don't know if there was ever a better example of of that. He is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. You know, good luck to the the challengers who want to take on you know on uh, that figure. Um, so there's the political side of him that I think he has um, awakened and stirred um, a lot of folks, me included, in, cer- in certain ways. So I think we can all look to him in that respect and say he speaks to uh, a frustration that we have felt over the last generation or so and how things have changed in a bad way. And then there's this new element of it that we've seen that should frustrate not just Republicans, but everyone who believes in in the the order and the rule of law. When you see someone who's been treated this way, um, a former president of the United States really is, is just a, a you, know, you know compounds the the issue. But if they'll knock down his door and if they'll drag him to all these multiple jurisdictions and and put try and put him on trial, then good goodness gracious, what will they do to the me's and you's of the world? So you know. In that sense, I divide them up into categories and try and analyze what's going on. And, Philip, is that kind of the next leg? I mean, as Jay has talked about, I mean, Trump cuts both ways. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if you're a Republican, sometimes he freaks you out. Sometimes you're like, yeah, I'm with him 100% on this. But but as Jay said, all of a sudden we just changed normal. Ne- never before in American history has a, a former president been indicted. And this cat's been indicted four years. Or, excuse me, four times. I guess one for every year he was president. Um for those who try to wean themselves off Trump, it seems every indictment kind of pushed you closer to, to Donald Trump, more supportive of Donald Trump. I mean, he became somewhat of a, a sympathetic figure in politics. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. It, it has not been something that you thought of when you talked about Trump. It was all the emotions he brought out. It was rarely was it sympathy. Because he was giving it out as hard as he could himself. So it was fun to watch the grudge match. It was WW2 wrestling and all that going on and, you know, in the gutter type politics. But, hey, now four times you've indicted him. I mean, how many counts are there on him, which they stack up, what, 50, 100 counts of, of stuff? He could live in jail. Heck, his kids would have to live in jail to serve all this time out. I mean, it, it's bizarre, but, yeah, we're talking about sympathy. And the sympathy 
might be just us feeling it ourselves because this attack on Trump four times like this is now an attack on us. And he's strengthened himself through some of the ugliest, you know, problems with the law that you can ever imagine. He's getting stronger because of it. And I feel more emotional about it than I did before. But you said last week it was personal with you. It did. You've never said that before. No, because it, it, he would always give it back. And, I, you know, everybody enjoyed the banter and the, and the fuss and the fight. But I don't know. I, I feel like I've got to defend myself. He, the lawyers, you know, he's got to pay to take care of this and try to run an election. It isn't right. Whether you endorse him or not, I mean, we have to defend ourselves. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Jay, is it personal with you? Do you feel an obligation to defend the Republican brand at the, at the level Trump's been attacked on? It is, and so for a few reasons. Number one, you used a good a good point a minute ago about the, the normal changing. So it wasn't that long ago we were all appalled and shocked that there are blue lights outside the former president's house as they kick in the door to go search the place. Th- that That's incredible. We're not talking about someone who's hiding drugs or, you know, trying to uh, create an act of terrorism, and they have to, you know, on an emergency basis go in there and search the place before he destroys the evidence. No, that, there's nothing like that going on behind those closed doors. And then secondly, it, it, and it continues to get worse, you drag an individual in for a mugshot. Um, so what's the point of, of, of doing that? You're, you need to get the, be able to have his information so that if this guy runs away from law enforcement or he, or he jumps bail or jumps bond, you have the ability to let everybody know, hey, Donald Trump, this is who we're looking for. Put the picture up. Everybody on this planet knows who Donald Trump is and what he looks like. There is absolutely no reasonable reasonable basis to to drag him and the Secret Service and create the security nightmare that they did for a mugshot. Other than then we're oh, we're going to treat him like we treat everybody else. Well, guess what? He's not everybody else. He's a former president of the United States. And every time you drag him through that, you're you're doing it for political gain on your side of the aisle, and you're doing it to stir up your base for your own benefit. And so, yes, it is personal when when they do those things and and to, to the system that I care that we all care about. And, and Philip, you mentioned a second ago. I mean, to me, it's um, I mean, it, it's 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 tough to be in a courtroom. It's tough to be in a it's real tough to be in a courtroom and the and the government be on the other side of the argument. I mean, J, J, Jay's in politics and he's a lawyer. He understands. I mean, there's an old phrase, money whip. I mean, you but you better you better make a deal because they'll money whip you. They have unlimited resources. You've got the federal. You've got some of these uh, state and local governments involved in this. They're not going to run out of resources. I mean, they, they're not going to say, "Hey, we can't go any further because we don't have any more money uh, to pay lawyers." As, as Republicans, I mean, do we have an obligation to help Trump? Yeah. I mean, it, this is a weird way to ask, but I mean, Jay just said it's personal. You've said it's personal, so so. Saying it's personal and doing nothing, how personal is it really? Um, if it's that personal, do we have an obligation to not just – I mean, I'm not saying Trump should be the nominee. Please understand, I'm not saying that, um, you know, um, let's clear the runway and let Trump be the inevitable nominee. I'm not arguing that. I think a hotly contested primary is good for the party. I think it's good for the process. I think we get a better and more proven candidate once we get to the end of this. But but right now, one one of our teammates, so to speak, is in dire straits. I mean, he's in harm's way. What, what what do you feel your obligation is? I tell you, I think if if we can help Trump raise a little money, 
<laughs> to fight, <laughs> like a to fight the lawyers. <laughs> that, that that wouldn't be a, a bad thing to think about. I, I mean, even if it's not a lot of money, if it's the fact that ten million extra people got out and donated fifty bucks, and it tells the Democrats, you know, your strategy isn't working. You're uniting us. You're adding people to this. I've never sent Trump a dime, ever. You know, I voted for him twice now, but never sent him a dime. But I'll tell you what. Hey, can you find mm-hmm. Trump's website? <laughs> I want to. I want to donate okay. online right now <laughs> <Okay>. today. <laughs> Dave, can you help me with that? I don't yeah. like where this is heading. Yeah. I feel the peer pressure on my wallet. I get real nervous on campaign violations. I mean, campaign oh. finance violations in particular. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that. Um, I, I don't know that I'm as averse in, in that particular endeavor as I need to be. But but no, I mean that, that's interesting that you you are encouraging people. Who uh, and and once again, I think the good analogy, Jay, is you know w- one of our teammates is on the field, and and the other side's really after him. I mean, th- there's no question about it. And, and I, I think you're fooling yourself into believing that if Trump's not the nominee, they're going to give the next Republican nominee a pass. I mean, this is kind of modus operandi now. This is the way the Democrats roll. I mean, they, they control the DOJ. It's obvious they'll weaponize the DOJ. So so you're basically saying you feel like Trump deserves our financial support to to create a fund that allows him to defend himself and not be money whipped i do even if it's not tons of money it's just it's the moral support that he feels if he can look around and 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 say well i'm not alone out here i'm fighting for them because it is it's an attack on us i mean think back when trump ran in 16 they had spies in his campaign the federal government was spying on him Nobody paid a price for that except Hillary. She lost, but nobody really ever paid a price for that. And they've come back and done that times 10 this time. Okay. Rev, is there a website? Okay. So I found, uh, and this looks official. So DonaldJTrump.com takes you to what looks like his official site. And then it's actually on a server called winred.com, which I think is an official fundraising um, uh, apparatus for maybe the Republican Party. But it does have contributions directly for him you can link right off that page from a $24 contribution up to a $3,300 contribution or anything I guess that you'd like to choose and donate so I think donaldjtrump.com looks like the official looks like the official way to make a donation okay I'm in I mean I'm in I'm with in. Philip Jay? I'm in Jay? I'm in okay we're, we're, we're all in <laughs> we're, we're, we're cheap I am how much this hurts <laughs> but I'll go back to what you said a second ago Kim the teammate analogy you know, I, I believe, too, a primary is a very useful opportunity to discuss issues, to, to push the ball forward on the issues. But we're beyond that now. This is about, you know, and, and if, again, if you look back at what's happened here, spreading the, the fight for the former president around multiple places just to make him go and back to those resources, spend money on lawyers who aren't cheap, as we all know, you know, just to have to fight that, we ought to be willing to put our money where our mouth is and help him with those well, every dollar you spend defending yourself is a dollar you can't spend you know articulating your your, your agenda yeah. convincing people that you're you're the better candidate um this I mean, looks this looks like it says it's the trump save america joint fundraising committee on behalf of donald j trump for president 2024 and save america okay um well, sounds official well let's encourage others i mean if there's any if people listening to this broadcast have different styles of life. I mean, you know what you make, you know what you can afford. Some can afford a good bit of money. Some can't afford much at all. But if you believe the former president deserves 
you know, ample resources to defend himself. And I think, I mean, I saw Jay Jay's a lawyer. Jay nods his head. You don't want to get in a in a in a in a that kind of contest with a with a government agency. I mean, they, you know, they they won't run out of money. They won't run out of resources. They will force you to make decisions that are not in your best interest, especially Jay, if you're not well funded. Is that fair to say? Well, it goes back to that resources, you know, issue. The government has, they don't worry about resources. They don't worry about manpower. They don't worry about, do we have the funds to, to fight this? And then and it goes back to the point I just made about stretching you across multiple jurisdictions across the country. Now you got to go hire lawyers in all these different places that are licensed and, you know, in those areas. And you're not talking about usually one lawyer. You're talking about multiple lawyers to fight these So things. we're talking $100 million. Oh, you're, you're, you're talking as a lawyer. I wouldn't even begin to know what the budget would be. I mean, I'm a Florence, Florence, uh, you know, small town lawyer, so to speak, but I wouldn't even know how you'd go about preparing a, a, a reasonable budget for, for this situation. It's just unbelievable. But every dollar spent on lawyers is a dollar not spent on an election campaign. And once again, I'm not saying Trump's the inevitable candidate. It appears he, I mean, I, he's obviously the front runner. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but, but some crazy things can happen. And we've all agreed the primary is good. I mean, let, let, let's let's have a competitive, highly spirited contest, but that doesn't make Trump's legal problems go away. That there's still a bill due to defend himself against, you know, our government. And and Philip, I think that's an interesting idea. Um, I'm in. So so the three of us are in. I would encourage anybody out there listening to my voice, if you could feel compelled to contribute whatever you can contribute, you know how to do that. Rev, give the address one more time. It's DonaldJTrump.com. I mean, imagine I him it. naming it after himself. That's so unlike him, right? <laughs> I mean, you, imagine him having himself at the center uh, of attention. Do we have a call? Uh, we do. Okay, let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan, hi, you are on with the delegation. Good morning, delegation. Um, I know that Jay is an attorney. Is that correct? I, I don't like answering that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to know how you felt about the corruption in the federal government whereas they are breaking the laws and they have made uh, Trump's attorneys uh, uh, violate their attorney-client privilege by taking them in and interrogating them. And if you do not do something now that we will have no representation at all, um, the other thing is, with the attorneys being charged in a local uh, lawsuit, they charged Trump's attorneys. So if you represent someone, they threaten you with throwing you in jail. So how do you feel about that as an attorney? So first first part of that question i think one of the most dangerous precedents that were that have been established in this process is this whole idea of when one party takes power they use the justice process and system and department as a weapon against the other party i mean this is something out of you know the really scary parts of history the history books when you weaponize the justice system against your political enemies i'm not talking about your foreign you know, terrorist enemies. These are political enemies, essentially, that the, the one party is weaponizing the justice system of, uh, system against. That should scare us all to death in a sense of you know, all the way from people trying to get people to run for office. I mean, how do you convince someone to say, step up to the plate, you know, go express your beliefs, whether it be at the city council, the county council, the state house or the, or the capital, 
in Washington when, you know, they have to have in their back of their mind, you know, is the government going to turn against me for my, for what I believe and the views that I'm expressing and the opinions that I'm preaching and trying to get people to pull towards. So that's one of the the most, if not the scariest things that has come about that we all should take notice of and be aware of and understand that's what's going on. And then the second part of this, I think that's a great point that you raise um, that hasn't really gotten quite the attention um, like the other things we talked about this morning already of examples of how the, the normal has changed and the aggressive nature of this. As a lawyer, I can't tell you of many, if any, uh, where uh, situations where the lawyers have been, you know, taken in and, and accused of a crime for basically, from what I'm seeing, simply representing their client. So it, it's it, to say the 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 goalpost has moved, been moved, is a is a very understatement is what's taking place, and it should it should scare us. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Since we're doing things that we aren't sure we should be doing. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, I I think it's interesting. I think Philip and Jay raise an interesting point that as Republicans, you understand money's the mother's milk and you got to be well-funded. It doesn't matter how good a candidate you are. You've got to be funded to be competitive. And every dollar that Trump or the party spends defending Trump in court against the first ever indictments of a former president is a dollar you can't spend, you know, campaigning. And it gives the Democrats a better chance uh, to be successful. So I don't, I mean, I don't think we broke any laws here and I would encourage anybody listening. Once again, some of you have money, some of you struggle, you know, how much you can afford. Uh, the three of us have committed to giving when read X number of dollars. I would encourage you if you believe not necessarily in president Trump, this is not an endorsement. I mean, it, neither one of us are endorsing this candidate over the others. We're just saying, we think Trump is being unfairly treated. We think the the defense of Donald Trump is going to gobble up a lot of money that could be helping him win the election. And we want to do a small part and encourage you to do a small part to help address that issue. Is that fair, Philip? I'm paying it up, baby. Since it's your idea. Yeah, they, did, they did it during the break. Yeah. Pay, paid already, made their donation. I Good saw deal. it. Good deal. So, so we would encourage others to do, to do the same. And I received a text from somebody that said that, Trump has spent already $60 million on attorneys. And fees that's, that's a lot of himself. campaigning, man. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a lot of campaigning you can do on, uh, on $60 million. Can we do this, Josh? We've got these contractual obligations with sponsors. That's the only thing more important than our, um, th- th- than our dignitary, <laughs> than our dignitaries. So, I um, mean, I thought about this morning, I said, okay, we do the winer line and, and Wednesday got away from us today, uh, is our last day of the week. So, I'm going to ask Philip and Jay to opine on the Weiner line calls. And this will be kind of fun. We're doing college football here in just a bit. Um, I think I won last year. Rickenbach came in second, Lowe came in third, and Jordan. This is a sham. This is as bad as what they're doing to Trump. (laughs) Jordan Jordan came. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm the DOJ. Uh, Yeah, I got a lot in common with the Democrats leading uh, the DOJ. But um, but I want to let's do the winders. I mean, sometimes they're interesting. Sometimes they suck. These may be interesting, and we'll let um the three of us give our um give our take on whomever is whining about whatever. Well, I don't believe the polling. Uh, is it? Am I? Am you're I, on, you're, you're on, on, on. Okay, so I don't believe the polling. They just poll Democrats more often. You know, eight, ten percent more during the polling get a better number. Biden at best is in his. 30, 35% range right now. And his own people are trying to throw him out. They're hoping we do. And I don't think we ought to fall for that bait. 
I hope Philip's right about that. I hope it is sort of a fake news kind of thing. In some sense, it's a little bit sad almost. You know, when I listened to the, I was riding down the road the other day listening to a, the news on, on the radio, and um, you could just, they, they played a clip from Biden, and you could just hear in his voice that he is not um, up to speed, uh, age and health issues, whatever it is. Um, it, it's almost a little sad because he is not up to par. In my evolution from candidate office holder to expert, it's close. This nation is deeply divided. Um, it's going to come down to what? Uh, a quarter of a million votes in about three or four or five states. Uh, Drew was with us. He can probably break that math down a lot more detailed than I can. But this nation's deeply divided. And, uh, you know, half the country believes in one set of priorities. The other half believes in another set of priorities. Um, there is no doubt that, I, I mean, I tweeted yesterday, and, and, I, and I'll be bipartisan. You ready? Two of the most powerful politicians in America today don't know what day of the week it is. Hmm. One's a Republican, one's a Democrat uh, in, in the spirit of fairness. And that's a country not only a sin, but rather one that needs to seriously address its issues relating to how it uh, governs its or transacts its federal government's affairs. I think it's Vivek. Um, <laughs> leave it to someone from Pamplico to correct your grammar. It would be um, not. Uh, it would be Vivek Ramaswamy, if I'm not mistaken. The only thing I said is they both are uncommonly well spoken. I'm not saying you can sell snow to an Eskimo. Part of part of politics. I mean, I'll level with you, Jay and Philip. Part of um, DeSantis's problem is he's not very charismatic. I mean, he struggles with charisma and. Ramaswamy and Obama have a common ingredient, and that is the ability uh, of orator. I mean, they, they, they are great at speaking their mind and, and convincing people they know what they're talking about, whether they do or not. That might be the only point Christie scored the other night when he tried to compare and tried to draw that contrast between, you know, as to Obama and Ramaswamy. You know, I agree with the, the charismatic side of it. Um, Maybe there's some similarities there, but when you look at the issues and you look at the uh, the opinions and views that that they both one historically or um, and one now um, push pushes, I don't know that you could be more different in that respect. I think he's a motivational speaker. And both of them have gone to those courses and figured out how to you know how to negotiate <laughs> speaking. I need to maybe go, I, I guess, but you know I don't, I don't have the boyish looks of my friend Jay over here, but <laughs> but I will cut you straight on what i feel well i mean and, and i'll say this and then we'll get to the to the last whiner and i mean this sincerely if if and i said to the audience yesterday if you're looking for a revolutionary i mean this guy professes and fancies himself as a political revolutionary um and it amazes me and, I, and i'm giving him a little credit here every now and then a member of the mainstream media tries to drag him off at a place where they think he's going to be ill-informed or not know at all what he's talking about and more times than not, he talks himself out of that hole. I mean, he, he really and truly does. Whether he knows what – listen, guys, here's how you win elections. It doesn't matter if you know what you're talking about. Do you sound like you know what you're talking about? Do, 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 can you convince other people that you know what you're talking about? I learned early on the campaign trail, most people are watching Seinfeld. Very few understand sophisticated foreign policy or, you know, our federal debt. 
all you don't have to know much, just a little bit more than they do. That's the secret uh, to being successful at the bank. It's shallow, but but it's reality. And Ramaswamy has made a name for himself in his ability to appear to know what what he's talking about, and he does it in a in an era where people are looking for different candidates. Would you two agree with that? That that today in America, especially in a Republican primary. People are, are, are kind of attracted towards somebody who appears or sounds a little bit different. I, I think that's fair, and I think m- maybe making this point a little bit, Obama was sort of the beginning of that. He was, you know, a, a smooth talking who was, you know, uh, younger at the time and came from a different, you know, um, mindset and as far as his views. And if you want to talk about a revolutionary, look at the policies that we've had the benefit now to look backwards. He was revolutionary, transformative, um, w- without question. Let's go to our last whiner. I don't think she switched parties. I think she's getting paid by Fox. <laughs> but believe it or not, money's the answer. Now, what's the question? She did leave the Democrat Party. She, she left the Democrat, but I don't think Republican. she's. I don't think she's a full-born convert yet. I don't think she's um she's um checked out of one hotel, checked into into another. No, I mean I do believe this, and I, and I want to get with Drew later today. I do believe that it is in Trump's best interest if he's the nominee to run with a female. I, I do believe that that there is some logic to Trump having issues with independent women voters, suburban educated white females. I, I'm not saying you know don't don't consider anybody but a female, but but it seems to me when I read some of the data and try to understand some of the data, Trump needs to seriously, if he's the nominee, he needs to consider a female as his running mate. Well, there's only one that's been on the stage so far, Nikki. So I don't know. Think he would. Be willing to pick Nikki to, to run with? I, I could not begin to say. Because you kind of feel like that's not really the presidential uh, debate. It's the vice presidential debate. So I don't know. I, uh, but uh, Tulsi wins the uh, beauty contest for sure. Well, yeah. I think Christy Noem is, yeah. anyway, she's kind of easy on the eyes. I'm telling you, a woman's not going to vote for a beautiful woman. I, I, for, call me whatever you choose to call me. A woman is not going to vote for a woman if they perceive that woman to be gorgeous. They just aren't. I'm not saying you got to find a homely woman to, to run, but but you just got to be careful about finding a super, super attractive. I mean, that that my wife says, don't say that on the radio, you fool. You can't say that. <laughs> but it's the truth. A, I had two women text me um, during, I don't know, a year ago when I said something similar to that. Got to be careful about, you know, um, nominating a woman that is perceived to be a little bit too attractive. If I had if I had an alarm button to hit right now, I would do it, and we should all run because the last thing this group of four guys sitting around this table needs to do is start articulating what we think women are thinking. Well, you, uh, you, you guys need to be yeah. careful because you're asking people to vote for you every two years. I don't. I don't have to be careful at all. Um, anyway, you care to give it? I mean, is, is that is that your fair warning? Well, so back up. Tulsi Gabbard, I'm a hard no. I think it was two House races ago when I was running for re-election. She endorsed my opponent mm-hmm. Dem- my, my democrat Jordan playing for keeps. my, my democrat Jordan uh, yeah. playing for keeps. my democrat opponent i remember getting something in an email i said i don't even know who tulsi gabbard is she's from you know and she's endorsing my opponent what did i do to her <laughs> so um no to tulsi gabbard uh under all circumstances um <laughs> but i you know you know what i'm for i'm for whoever the the presidential nominee i'm for them picking the person that number one they think is most prepared to help them lead the agenda that helps get this country forced or pushed back in the right direction. Whoever that person is, 
that's most prepared to help lead this country and then in, in time of crisis, if there is a terrible tragedy, willing to take over, and I believe they have the ability and capability to be president of the United States. That's who I want to be. Well, and, and I'll say this, and then we'll wrap up. I'll say this about, about Haley. I don't think Trump has. To me, Nikki has tried to have it both ways. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a complicated needle to try and thread. You know, I'm going to be loyal to the traditions of – uh, what, what kind of the donor class expect of their nominee, but I'm also going to try to flirt around with some of the America first. I just think, I don't want to say you have to be either or, but, but you can't be, you, you can't try to be all things to all people because you appear to be nothing to nobody. And I think she's guilty, guilty of that with all due respect. And I mean that sincerely. And I think Nikki acquitted herself well on the debate stage. I really do. I think her understanding of foreign policy, her articulating of foreign policy uh, is to be commended. I, I just don't know how you run on the last 40 or 50 years of American foreign policy. I would say we're going to stop being serious and have fun for a second, but we've done everything from give Trump money to call Ramaswamy a prophet. So we've had fun for, for an hour. Time to do some college football. And I'm the defending champion. Uh, well, I mean, who, who's the defending champion? It's obviously me. I'm okay. the defending champion. Jordan, Jordan, I think, is the defending champion. Rick and Baugh tries to claim that prize, but I think no, in all no. honesty. And we need to get that straight when Mike, Mike will be back next week. And by the way, I did text him, and he's in on the Trump. Uh, donation. He okay. said he, just did, he did mention something about borrowing money from the gunslinger to do it. But he's in. <laughs> but, you know, he got might, a, might got, got tangled a, up on Kansas. And he I got, got a half a case of Bud Light I'll give him. I can't find anybody to take it. <laughs> Easy now. Easy now with that. Uh, anyway, let's, let's, um, let's go to college football. You ready? We did six games a week last year. We'll do six games a week this year. And it's kind of interesting on open day. There's some pretty good games here. Some, some kind of, you ready? Some intersectional rivalries uh, on the board here for today. So um, tonight, you got Florida Gators at Utah. Jordan, defending champion, you go first. <laughs> that should mean I get to go second. <laughs> no, I'll, um, I'm going to go against my natural SEC tendencies, and I'm going rem- to, think, I think Utah got beat early by Florida at Florida last year. I think they're playing at Utah. I'm going to take Utah. Hello? He studied this. I'm taking Utah like him. All right. A third vote for the Mormons. I'm going to go with the Mormons as well. So that's three for Utah, none for Florida. Billy Napier wins. I mean, he needs this game. Uh, Gator Nation can get restless in a hurry, if you know what I mean. Um, second game, Philip, I'll start with you. Virginia at Tennessee. Tennessee. Okay. Yeah, you got to go back to – I'm getting back to my SEC roots here, Tennessee. I'm going Tennessee as well. As much as I'd like to choose the team – of the university founded by my political hero, Thomas Jefferson. I think Tennessee is uh, is better at college football. Colorado at TCU. I'll go first. I'll take the Horn Frogs. I'm on the uh, Prime bandwagon. I think he's going to have uh, – I forgot about Prime. Yeah, Prime and his cowboy hat will be on the sideline. I'm, I think he'll have them, you know, motivated and ready to play, and he's going to have some good talent compared to uh, last year for, the, for Colorado. I go Colorado. Colorado. Well, unless prime time's going to suit up, then I'm going. <laughs> I'm going against them. Prime, prime bitten himself. He had his toe amputated. Did you know that? He had some real bad injuries to his feet when he played football, and had some arthritis, and they couldn't fix it. I mean, they just couldn't. So they amputated uh, one one of his toes. I think on his left foot. Um, he's limping around, but he's still a um, he's a piece of work, as, yeah. as we say. Okay, um, LSU versus FSU, Louisiana State at Florida State. Jordan? Not buying the, the hype on the a- ACC Florida State Seminoles, so I'm going to go with the, the real Tigers. Mm. <laughs> it just means more, is what you're saying. 
Fair enough. The real Death Valley. Well, there's got to be something to distinguish me from him, so I'm going with Florida State. Okay, you're going FSU, and I'm going LSU. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm going FSU. I'm going Florida State. I'm going uh, a resurgence. Uh, as a Gamecock fan, we need FSU to be good. We really do to try and beat them in that division so they stay out of that four team, which will eventually be, what, an eight-team playoff or a 12-team? Anyway, I lose track of that. Okay, you ready? Uh, our state schools, Clemson at Duke Monday night in Durham. There will be 17 Duke fans and 35,000 Clemson <laughs> fans um, unless Duke has an intramural basketball game and then they can trick them into to going to the football game. Philip, Clemson at Duke. Clemson. Okay, with a P. Yeah. Good deal. Clemson big. Okay, Clemson big. I think the line's only 12 and a half or 13, but I've got Clemson uh, big in that one. And then um, in their quest for the first ever national championship in college football, our beloved Gamecocks <laughs> traveled to Charlotte to play the North Carolina Tar Heels. Um, Low, I'll start with you. South Carolina, the <laughs> only Carolina in this game. South Kakalaki, he says. I'm going with my heart. Go Gamecocks. Go Gamecocks is what he says. Um, yeah, I got a hunch. I mean, I think they're a little better than North Carolina. I think North Carolina's quarterback obviously will give South Carolina. Well, what are you shaking your head about, Josh? I don't know anything about the Josh Tar Heels, went to App I'm State like, and knows nothing about college football. How do you go to App State and not know anything about college football? I, I'm I'm just amazed you almost pretended like you were going to choose the Tar Heels. Oh, uh, let me think about that. I've learned that in this game okay. of entertainment. All right. That, that they, you try to make sometimes things not as obvious as they yeah. as they really <laughs> you are. Didn't do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll <laughs> yell and cuss and throw things at the television, but I think my Gamecocks pull it off at the end of the day. So we um so you got football tonight, tomorrow night, Saturday night. Got a race Sunday and football Sunday, and then we got more football on Monday. If I'm Clemson, I'm ticked about having to play on Monday night in Durham. I mean that that's just that ain't fun for the fan base, is it? Am I right? Clemson seems to number one like playing on that Monday night, that Labor Day game. They play a lot a lot on that Monday night historically, if I remember correctly. But going to Durham, yeah. uh, first game out the gate. I had someone tell me that Clemson cut a deal unofficial to the ACC. We'll play the Monday night if you don't give us any Thursday nights. You know, and Thursday night home games. They don't mind going on the road and playing on Thursday night, but we'll play the Monday night game if you try to help us during the season to not force us to play on um Is that because Clemson's out in the middle of nowhere and you gotta hit your wagon and horse and mule to get <laughs> out there? You said that, the... not me. Jordan, are you unopposed in your Next election bid because you're going to drum up a Clemson Tiger no, opponent. I, I, I think if you aren't Cle careful. Clemson's a great university. You, all the goodwill you gained with Trump, you've given it back now with um <laughs> with being a, a Gamecock homer. Anyway, hey, enjoy your long weekend. We'll be back Tuesday, probably as average as ever. <laughs>